0: And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro-access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. today. The Spanish Inquisition was not actually really truly about religion. It certainly wasn't about God and salvation. None of the Inquisitions were. The Inquisitions were about power and control. They were about maintaining one's business interests, and that business just happened to be the business of organized religion, and a lot of times that religion was tied to the monarchy. They were about the Roman Catholic Church securing papal prestige in Europe, ensuring not only their survival, but their ability to economically thrive, agree with us, pay your tithes, Pledge loyalty to our Catholic king or queen or both and bow eternally before the mighty Church of Rome. Kiss the ring or face the horrific consequences, marginalization, expulsion, torture or execution. With the Spanish Inquisition specifically, it was the king and queen driving interrogations and persecution instead of the Pope. They used the cover of the church's infallibility to culturally homogenize their newly conquered lands. The Spanish Inquisition was less about saving the heretic souls of the Spanish Empire in its newly acquired territories and more about solidifying a Catholic culture that would be easier to control than a mixed culture of Muslims, Jews, and indigenous peoples. It was about obliterating cultural ties and loyalty to the population's previous rulers. King Ferdinand of Aragon and Queen Isabella were Catholic. They were acquiring a lot of new land and they were building a vast empire and they needed unity to keep things moving. And their successors, Wanted the same damn thing. And if you wanted to remain in their expanding kingdom, you're going to be Catholic or shit was going to get real rough, real super scary stuff, kind of rough. So let's dig deep into some dark times. Let's suck into some atrocities that would make today's worst headlines seem quaint. Corruption, torture, persecution, and overall uh, medieval mayhem today on Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Time Suckers, on the master sucker, a.k.a. the prophet of Nimrod, a.k.a. the plaything of Lucifina, a.k.a. the background vocalist to the sweet bar of the suck, Michael motherfucking McDonald. I'm Dan Cummins, and you are listening to Time Suck. Welcome to the cult of the curious and hail Nimrod. Uh, very excited to say that my new stand-up comedy album, Maybe I'm the Problem, out now. It is out now. It is for sale. This is the Pandora exclusive album I talked about a few months ago. And uh, it's no longer exclusive to Pandora. You can still listen to it there, uh, but now you can you can get it, buy it, put it on your phone, put it on your tablet, put it on your computer, wherever you want. I would have given a heads up uh, uh, sooner regarding when it was going to drop, but because of some behind-the-scenes independent music distribution stuff, I actually didn't know when it was going to come out. I, don't, I had a, a rough estimate sometime in the next few weeks. But it's here now. It's here now. I'm excited to say currently, uh, as of this recording at least, number one on the iTunes comedy charts uh, with no press. So that made me, uh, what a pleasant surprise. It's available on Amazon, on, on the Google Play Store as well, digital only. Uh, I hope you download it. I hope you love it. I hope you rate it. bunch of bunch of new stuff I'm really proud of. Uh, Danger Brain did the cover design, so of course it looks awesome. So so grab some new stand-up. Treat yourself to some laughs. Go get it. And a quick shout-out, this is so random, to uh, Leighton Vander Etch, a Boise State linebacker, former Boise State linebacker, taken in the first round of the NFL draft by the Dallas Cowboys who went to my alma mater, Salmon River High School. Uh, he just went from eight-man football, you know, a few years back in a town of four hundred people to a multi-million dollar contract, I believe twelve mil in the NFL. Impressive. I've never met him, never met anyone in his family. Uh don't actually give a shit about high school football. And for all I know, he could be a huge douchebag. But I haven't heard that. I haven't heard it anything either way. But he made it from Riggins, Idaho, to America's team. And I respect the drive and hustle that it took to achieve that. I hope he's an awesome dude who will make my little football crazed town proud. Good luck, young man. Uh, my kids are actually kind of sad. They're uh they're bummed that their dad is no longer the most uh, famous person from Riggins, Idaho. I, I thought I would hold that title forever, but I'm very excited for this kid. Uh quick thank you to Daniel Weaver, Freemason and Time Sucker, who sent in an old Freemason handout he found in his lodge's office while doing some spring cleaning. Sent it into the suck dungeon. Very cool old uh you know, little mini flyer, I guess a little handout for potential members. Perfect condition. I love that kind of stuff. Thanks for sending that in to P.O. Box 3891, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. 83814-Hail Nimrod. Time Sucker is brought to you today by the My West Coast Buds podcast. Yep, hosted by Comic, Edible Jedi, Time Sucker, Joe DeMeo. My West Coast Buds, Inside Baseball Look at Cannabis, Coffee, Comedy, Spirits, all of Joe's favorite vices, and so much more. It's a fun and funny conversation where you learn a lot about the explosive new industry of legal marijuana, marijuana, this, uh, this week on My West Coast Buds. Dropping today another effortless information episode because My West Coast Buds loves Time Suck and we love them back. Co-host Ben teaches host Joe about the power of intense, psychedelic DMT. Shit's going to get weird. So listen, subscribe to the My West Coast Buds podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, all sorts of other podcast players, including, of course, uh, you can find it at MyWestCoastBuds.com. Link in today's episode description button on the sponsor section of the app. Just Push it. Uh, big thanks to my San Francisco Bay Area suckers, man. Thank you for the gifts. <laughs> I have a Chikatilo hockey jersey now somebody made. Looks like it's for a real sports team. Uh, thanks for your laughter. Six shows I did at the Punchline Comedy Club, man. Whether it was a uh, 100 people on Wednesday or uh, one of uh, man, one of three sold-out shows in the weekend. It was so great. You fucking brought it. Every show. Most people overall have ever had come out to see me in the Bay uh, by a lot. Had a blast at that historic venue. Finally got my uh, Dan Dion photographed headshot on the wall. I was honored. Only took 13 years. I uh, hope you guys bring the same energy to the live Spokane-Washington podcast at the Spokane Comedy Club this uh, Sunday. I think it's a podcast. I don't know what that is. I'm talking about a podcast. May 6th, we're having, we'll we have Time Suck Beer on tap for that one. First time, man. Young Buck Brewing in Spokane has crafted a Time Suck IPA just for that show. So that's pretty dope. Uh, those attending will be the first to actually taste the suck. And who or what are we going to be sucking? Uh, going to be sucking Gary Ridgway, Green River Killer. Then will be at Sacramento Punchline, three nights, May 10th through 12th. Home focusing on time suck and the suck dungeon the rest of the month until May 31st when I head to the Tempe Improv, Arizona. May 31st, June 3rd, June 8th and 9th. Arle- uh, I'll be at the DC, Washington DC. Excuse me, uh, Draft House. Uh, tickets on sale June 15th and 16th. I'll be at the Funny Bone in Des Moines, Iowa. Only two nights. Tickets on sale there as well. Uh, July 15th to another live time suck podcast in Orlando with some BDMs at the Orlando Improv. More tour dates at DanCumminsTV. La Jolla, Dayton, Tampa, Palm Beach. Chicago, Sunnyvale, Portland, Tacoma, Columbus, Grand Rapids, and more coming up in 2018. And then a quick sad news: a lot of the Pootie and Juju limited edition coffee mugs that were sent out—well, not a lot, a fair amount—were not properly packaged and they got destroyed in shipment. Shipment, excuse me. Not fun trying to drink from a cup that's with a busted ass handle. So if you receive one of these mugs and you haven't notified us yet, please do email Merchman and good dude who feels terrible about what happened, Eric Radiker. He will, he will never send out fragile items to the suck faithful in that same way. Again, he's a great dude. Feels awful about how things that went down. Email him at eric at e2method.com. He will send you a new not busted mug. We'll throw in a sticker pack for your troubles as a way of saying, saying sorry. We care about your support. And uh, and and still waiting for the 40 mugs that replaced the uh, 40 or the 200 not sold due to quality issues. They're coming in this week. Those two little, two diddle pooty mugs. They're going to be on sale sometime this week. Only 40 left awaiting a final quality control check by the merch man. And, uh, and when that uh, gets the green light, I'll announce on social media, at Time suck Podcast on uh, Instagram is, is the preferred place. That's where you can find out exactly when they drop, and be sure to get yours uh, so you, you'll know. You'll know. And uh, so many emails this past week about the Golden State Killer, uh, Joseph uh, James D'Angelo. Yes, he has been added to the topic list. Space lizards can vote him into being an episode if they choose to. If that's the will the suck. And uh, dude, it was also known as the original Night Soccer, night soccer excuse me, an East Area Rapist. Yep. Uh, finally, because I left his email out of last week's episode description, I uh, need to mention again Timesucker Adam Dayton sent those two huge custom hand painted cornhole boards into the suck dungeon and they're majestic. Pick on Instagram at Timesuck Podcast. You can hire him to make custom boards for you. Adam Dayton eighteen at gmail.com. All right, let's get into it. Let's get into Time eighty five, the Spanish Inquisition. All right, time sucker. All right, cool-ass, curious human being likes to have fun and learn. Meet sack who understands that learning something new and interesting is actually so much fun. Feels good to get a little smarter. Not have to work for it. Mm-hmm. I like the way you're living your life. So to understand the Inquisitions, uh, you first need to understand the early church's rise to power in Europe, who their competitors were, what they did to the competition before the Spanish Inquisition specifically ever took place. Uh, We learned a lot about the initial formation of the early Christian church uh, in in Rome, in the Roman Empire, in times like 83, lost books of the Bible. I feel like we're kind of completing this uh, recent early Christian arc here. Uh, Just a few weeks ago, various early Christians, many of whom still uh, identified as being Jewish, you know, they spread their messages around the Roman Empire. They, uh, They lived during the first few centuries after Christ's death. They all agreed that Bojangles was their one true God. Three legs representing the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, one eye representing the one true God and a huge pitbull dick representing um uh, power I believe uh, or or a uh, big pitbull Dickness uh, I don't I don't know I don't know what it represented it's nonsense no early Christians didn't actually agree on much other than that Christ was in some way very significant and that things had changed uh you know uh, from from the Judaism before there was a uh, a big movement of things being different uh early Christians were persecuted by various Roman emperors during this time, because the official religion of Rome, still polytheistic worship of the various Roman gods, but then through persistent missionary work spreading their knowledge of scripture, a Roman emperor was eventually converted to the new faith. That was Constantine, the, the first, aka Saint Constantine, aka the Reverend Dr. Juniper uh, Twiggleberry, aka I obviously made up that last one. That'd be a weird nickname for him. Emperor Constantine, born or uh, on or near February 27, 280 CE, was the son of an uh, army officer. Flavius Valerius, Constantinus, a.k.a. Flavor Flav the First. But for real, Constantine's dad, Flavius, was super good at fighting. He was uh, was so good at military strategy and conquest that he rose to the rank of Caesar or deputy emperor in 293 CE, headed out to serve directly under the emperor of the Western Roman Empire, Augustus Maximian. While dad was out fighting, young Constantine, a man who deserves his own suck. So I'm not going to go too deep into the details of his life here. Hopefully we'll do a Constantine suck down the road. Uh, He was raised and educated by the best teachers of the day in the imperial court, the court of Diocletian, uh, Diocletian, yeah, Diocletian emperor of the Eastern Roman Empire in uh, Nicomedia, uh, now Izmit, Turkey. And uh, and if you're confused by the the Eastern Western uh, uh, Roman Empire distinction, uh, well, by 285 CE, the Roman Empire had grown so vast that it was no longer feasible to govern all of the provinces from the central seat of Rome. So the emperor, uh, the, the Diocletian He divided the empire into halves, with the Eastern Empire being governed out of uh, Byzantium, later Constantinople, uh, Constantinople, and the Western Empire governed from Rome. Now, initially, both sections were were known equally as the Roman Empire, although in time, the Eastern Empire would adopt Greek instead of Latin. and would lose much of the character of the traditional Roman Empire and also uh, eat a lot more hummus, a lot more pita bread, uh, a lot more green olives. Uh, They'd have a lot more hair on their chest. No, but for roughly like the first hundred years of the split, uh, they worked together and were were essentially sister empires. And that would change. And again, the split of the Roman Empire is something that would merit its own suck. All, all this Roman talk is, is making me want to do another Roman suck again for sure. Just wanted to clarify a little here in case you were like, what the fuck? How is his dad second command to, to one emperor of Rome, but then he's going to school in the court of another emperor of Rome at the same time, which clearly his dad is, is cool with. Uh, how many fucking emperors are there? Why, why aren't they fighting each other? Oh, there's two emperors, one for each half of the freshly divided uh, enormous Roman Empire, and the two halves are allies. And sometimes the two halves rejoin for a minute under one emperor, then they split apart. Man, Europe, man. The more you dig into its history, the more stories you come across where this dude was king of this kingdom, but then he married the heir to the throne of this other kingdom, and now his empire is doubled. But there's an uprising, and he loses two thirds of it to this despot, and then this emperor over here doesn't produce a legitimate heir, so then four dudes challenge for the throne of that empire, which split into fucking three pieces because one guy consolidates two, and then two kingdoms are attacking each other or have the power struggle. It's just very wonderfully Game of Thrones, or I guess more appropriately, Game of Thrones is just wonderfully you know medieval Europe. So anyways, Constantine, while growing up in the East, encounters people from all walks of life in Diocletian's uh, imperial court, including some early Christians. Christianity was actually front-page news early in Constantine's life thanks to the great persecution of the Christians that began at the court of Diocletian at Nicomedia and was uh, enforced with particular intensity in the eastern parts of the empire beginning in 303 CE. So soon, Constantine would take the throne through a series of events. I'm just going to gloss over here. No one's going to be tested. uh, So if you get a little confused, don't worry about it. You don't need to know any of this to understand the rest of the episode. On uh, 305 CE, the two emperors of the West and the East, Diocletian and Maximian, abdicated their thrones. They were done. They, were, they wanted to retire and just, uh, you know, hang around with pool boys or whatever they did back in Rome. Uh, uh, be succeeded by their respective uh, deputy emperors, Galerius and Constantinus. Constantine's father, Galerius Valerius Maximinus in the East. These <laughs> fucking names. And Flavius Valerius Severus in the West. Uh, Constantius uh, requested his son's presence from Galerius, and Constantine joined his father at uh, Gessoriacum, uh, modern uh, Boulogne, France. They crossed together to Britain, fought a campaign in the north before Constantius' death at uh, Iboricum, modern York, in 306 CE. Immediately named emperor by his army, Constantine then threw himself into a complex series of civil wars in which uh, Maxentius, uh, the son of Maximian, rebelled in Rome with his father's help uh, Maxentius suppressed uh, Severus, who had been proclaimed Western Emperor by Glarius. A lot of similar-sounding names fighting each other. Who was then replaced by Licinius. A lot of i'ss. And uh, when Maximian was rejected by his son, he joined Constantine in Gaul, only to betray Constantine and to be murdered or forced to commit suicide. Constantine, who in 307 CE had married Maximian's daughter Fausta as his second wife. Again, it's so fucking Games of Thrones. They're just they, – they constantly were like marrying the fucking siblings that they're enemies to you know, try and solidify things. Uh, he invaded Italy in 312. After a lightning campaign, defeated his brother-in-law. <laughs> families are always fighting families. Maxentius at the Milvian Bridge near Rome. He then confirmed an alliance that he had already entered into with Licinius. Uh, Galerius died in 311, Constantine became Western Emperor, Licinius shared the East with his rival Maximinus, and then Licinius defeated Maximinus, became sole Eastern Emperor, then lost territory in the Balkans to Constantine, who's now fighting him, 316. After a further period of tension, Constantine attacks Licinius in 324, routes him at uh, Adrianople, and uh, and becomes sole Emperor of East and West. The Empire would divide back into Eastern and Western halves when, when he died 13 years later on May Twenty second three thirty seven C E. Man, and you thought you had problems with your in laws? These guys are trying to fucking kill each other all the time. They're sending you know sending people to die. Ah, yeah, fight my brother in law this week. Last week I uh, had to fucking burn my mother in law's village. Yeah, she was riling me. She wasn't respecting the throne. I'm uh, attacking a few cousins next week. Uh, I killed a brother this morning. Poisoned uh, poisoned an uncle last night. It's been a it's been a busy week. No, but a lot of shit, right, man? Anyway, sometime during all that fighting and ass kicking. Constantine became not only familiar with Christianity, he became a Christian himself. No more Roman polytheism, and he believed that his new Christian God had given him the power to conquer his kingdom by the power of gold, but replace that with God, Christian God. You know uh, you know how Christian athletes like to claim that God helped them win the big game at uh, press conferences? You know, they do that a lot. Just, I just want to thank God for the Super Bowl victory. Uh, he clearly loved our team more than the other team, and I appreciate God taking some time today to focus on what really mattered Helping us get a few extra TDs. I'm sure it wasn't easy taking time away from various children dying of starvation and curable diseases in third world countries to help us get the extra first downs necessary to sustain our game-winning drives today. And I just appreciate the hell out of it. Praise God. All right. Clearly, I'm exaggerating and distorting what athletes do, but they're calm down. Don't send me any emails. I do think it's funny when athletes become so self-important, they think God actually gives a shit about their silly games. And yes, again, before I get a bunch of emails, I do understand that the Christian God is omnipotent and can help one dude throw some crisp fucking fade routes, you know, while also simultaneously help other children across the globe. I, I get it. I know it's not one or the other. I just I just still think it's a little silly when I hear that done on TV. Anyway, Constantine was like the first dude to do that. He was like, you know, I want to thank Jesus for helping me kick some heathen ass. past few years, uh, through the glory of my new God, I have reunited our great empire. So he's real into it, real into it. And Constantine did a ton to empower and provide structure to this new religion he loved so much, christianity uh remember from the lost books of the bible suck he organized the first council of nicaea 325 ce established the basis of early church doctrine and then after his death all subsequent emperors would favor christianity with with like with like the exception of one little blip there was a little two-year blip during the brief reign of emperor julian also known as julian the apostate Uh, he briefly shifted the empire's official faith back to the traditional roman gods on paper at least i don't think the i don't think the culture really followed him uh, that they'd worship prior to Constantine, and then uh, and then there was Emperor Superbus. He got some shit done. He did some things. No, that no, he did. There was no. There was a, Superbus. He just, he's now he has no part in the story. That was just a little reference to the pronunciation blunder I had back in the Caligula suck. No, uh, Theodosius uh, made specifically Catholic Christianity the official religion of the empire in 381. Prohibited the worship of pagan gods in 392. Pope is in big time now, man. Roman Empire is a Christian empire. Officially, the official brand of Christianity runs through the Vatican. Nice. Uh, early on in the first few centuries of the Christian church, as we've touched on before, there were various groups of Gnostics and Orthodox or Proto-Orthodox believers. And then the Orthodox believers won out. There was that whole Council of Rome in 382, which established the main canon of the Bible that would become the Catholic Bible early on. There was uh, various bishops in various Roman cities. There was the Bishop of Rome was one of them. But then due uh, mainly to Rome's significance in the traditional capital of the Roman Empire, That dude becomes head bishop, and that position morphs uh, morphs into that of pope. Pope, Pope's in. Got a pope now. Heathen's out. Pope one. Heathen zero. And uh, over the next few centuries, this new powerful state-sanctioned religion becomes very, very powerful due to various emperors giving the church to which their souls were beholden, you know, such upper hands as, you know, exemption from taxes, uh, tithing, you know, riches to the church. Church becomes very wealthy. becomes a thriving empire of its own. Uh, there were no religious antitrust laws in the early days of, you know, expansion, and the Pope soon conquered the market on salvation. In the, um, you know, most powerful empire of the world, the uh, Catholic Church became the Amazon.com of churches. Uh, the ancient Pope more powerful than modern Jeff Bezos. Sure, there was competitors, but the, all of them quickly fell to Overstock.com status. You know, Judaism, various forms of paganism, few scattered offshoots of Christianity, all fighting for a distant second place when it came to uh, power, influence, and wealth. I mean, really, the Catholic Church is the most impressive empire uh, to come out of medieval Europe, longest lasting, you know, kings and queens in their various kingdoms, you know, they'd come and come and go. Vatican still stands today, still crushing it, still making that money. Uh, During the thousand years of the Middle Ages, uh, from the fall of Rome to the Renaissance, the, the papacy matures, establishes itself as the preeminent theological authority of Europe. Religious life assumes new forms or reformed, established ones, you know, and missionaries expand the geographic boundaries of the faith. And uh, as the early church expanded, it occasionally ran into a little opposition, and it did not care for that. It ran into people who who didn't believe the things that they liked people to believe. You know, the churches of Rome ran into Muslims, Jews, occasionally even other types of Christians. And those people uh, irritated the fuck out of the church. They thought they were kind of gross. Just, ugh, I don't like it. Ugh. What are they worshiping? Ugh. No. Super annoying to the pope. He was like, I don't like it. I don't like it. They're like Pope. We found some Muslims. Ah, I don't like it. No, Pope, Pope. We found a couple. Uh, we found a couple uh, uh, Jews down uh, in Sicily. Ah, no. I don't know. I don't want it. And then they would have to be like, all right, all right, calm down, Pope. Now get them out of here. And they'd have to work on getting them out of there. Uh, well, for the most part, uh, definitely not always. The Church tolerated Jews and Muslims. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit tolerated. Uh, they weren't great to them, but they tolerated them for political and financial reasons. Did not tolerate at all those who consider themselves to be uh, fellow followers of Christ's teachings who didn't think the Pope had his Pope shit right. Uh, The Catholic Church and the Pope hated people who didn't think the early church was coming correct with their spiritual teachings. These people presented the biggest threat to the dominance of the church. These people could destroy the church from within. What if some new type of Christian captured a new emperor's attention? In with the new, out with the old. Now they've ruined everything. How's the Pope going to buy new fucking cool Pope hats and clean Pope robes if he's not the official church of the rulers of Europe? Who's going to do the Pope's laundry? Is he going to be expected to wash his own hat? No. Fuck that. There's one thing you learn over and over studying the history of empires and in large institutions. It's when uh, an organization becomes extremely powerful and wealthy. They do not give up their power without a fight. And so to keep from losing power, the church begins to label professed believers who maintain religious opinions contrary to their beliefs as heretics. Oh, and the Pope couldn't stand them. Like he would get worked up about, you know, like Muslims and Jews. But if you brought up heretic, like, uh, they'd probably even be nervous to bring that the like, Pope. Uh. I know you're already mad about that Muslims. Get, get him out of here. I know, I know. I know. I know. I know. I, uh, we have something else to talk to you about though. There's, uh, <sighs> uh over in France, we found some heretics. <laughs> <laughs> Can't a no, I, it! I mean, fuck. He really freaked out. That's when he, he eventually, actually I said more things after that, but you didn't hear him because it went to like a dog only able to be heard decibel of high pitchness. That's how worked up he got. He would just, his mouth would move and his arms would flare around and you couldn't even hear anything. Heretics were the worst. Enemy number one. The papacy would rather deal with murderers and rapists than heretics. Heretics were incredibly dangerous, man. These fuckers killed the church with nothing but words and ideas, you know, which can truly be more dangerous than swords in some cases. If these heretics infected enough people with their new ideas. Whole shebang crumbles. You know, and as you know, things wouldn't necessarily crumble with Martin Luther's Protestant Reformation years later because the Catholic Church was so established by then. You know, and with King, with King Henry VIII split from Rome and the formation of the Anglican Church years later, but but they would certainly splinter and crack with those movements. And while still powerful, uh, the Catholic Church would lose forever the vice like grip it once had over the world's Christians. And in the 12th century, the now powerful Roman Catholic Church encounters a large group of Christians who are reviving Gnostic beliefs in northern Italy and southern France: the Cathars. Now, the uh, and the church decides something must be done with these so-called heretics. So let's talk about the Cathars. In the first half of the uh, 11th century, isolated groups of Cathars, also known as Cathari, uh, from Greek, Catharos, pure, uh, appeared in Western Germany, Flanders, Northern Italy. And initially, they didn't last long. But the late 11th century, no more was heard of them. And suddenly, in the 12th century, they just kind of reappear. And uh, Cathar beliefs uh, initially vary between Cathar communities, Catharism, um, or Catharism. Uh, was originally taught by ascetic leaders, uh, monks, basically, uh, people who dedicated their lives to the pursuit of contemplation and simple living. And the first Cathars uh, didn't have a lot of set guidelines for their beliefs. It was very loosely organized. However, one thing most if not all ancient Cathars agreed upon from the beginning was a dualistic belief that the world was composed of things that were good and things that were evil. And there wasn't much gray area in between. Uh, this, this thing over here is good and of God. This thing over here is bad and of the devil. And they believed that the material world fell on the devil side of that. Wealth equals devil. And that did not set well with Rome and the Vatican. Have you ever been to the Vatican? I I have. I've been to the Sistine Chapel. Uh, Not cheap looking. Beautiful. Extremely expensive looking. Decadently opulent. No expense spared to present the glory of God. I I went to the bathroom in the Vatican. Instead of toilet paper, they insisted that you would wipe your ass on the faces of heathens. Faces of faithless heathens. They would just uh, bring a few in, you'd wipe your ass on their face, and then they would just be uh, thrown into a fire pit. That's a little value. No, uh, but no, but it's very, very nice. When I was a student at Gonzaga, Jesuit Catholic institution, we used to joke about the priests uh, who may may have technically taken a vow of poverty, but far from poor, not even close to impoverished. A friend of mine, Blaine, he worked in the priest's residence hall uh, where they'd eat, uh, you know, uh, this was like his work study job. And he'd sometimes be able to bring home leftovers. Man, fucking filet mignon. Salmon fillets, you know, lobster. <laughs> right, for real. They weren't impoverished. They weren't eating ramen noodles, mac and cheese. They were driving Beamers. They didn't technically belong to them. They were owned by the university, whatever. But, uh, you know, for all intents and purposes, it was their cars. They lived a, they lived a lifestyle that was comparable to being a very upper, upper middle class at least, you know. And and these are just the priests. Imagine the bishops and then the Pope himself. Pope isn't eating peanut butter and honey sandwiches, right? He's not having fucking toast on stale bread. Well, the Cathars, they didn't like that. They didn't live like that. They thought that type of bougie kind of shit was disgusting. They were very pious. Uh, they didn't just take vows of poverty. They truly lived poverty, man. They'd work enough to provide for their basic survival, but then that was it. And by the 1140s, the Cathari really started to kind of organize themselves. They, uh, they got into a early form of martial arts known as Kenjo, that one Cathari brought back from a pilgrimage to Tehran where it met a Mongolian monk. And he taught the other Cathari the Kenjo forms and slowly, passed down from generation to generation, each generation building upon the knowledge of the previous generation until eventually one man had perfected the forms and the art could evolve no further. It was now truly perfect, the perfect martial art, and one perfect human had become invincible. A one-man fighting force, unable to be stopped or killed, and that man is Jean-Claude Van Damme, the last cather, coming this fall to theaters. Now, as nonsensical as that sounds, uh, it makes even less sense uh, when you realize that Jean-Claude is actually Belgian. He seems French to me. He looks French, but he's Belgian. Anyway, sorry, I got way off track. By 1140, the Cathari really did start to organize themselves. A hierarchy forms, uh, a liturgy, or agreed-upon form of worship is developed along with a formalized doctrine. Around 1149, see, the first Cathar bishop establishes himself in the north of France. A few years later, he establishes colleagues, other bishops at Albi and Lombardy. Uh, the status of these bishops is confirmed, and in the following years, more bishops are set up. Until by the turn of the century, there's like 11 bishops, you know, uh, one in the north of France, four in the south, six in Italy. You see what they're starting to do? These fuckers are forming their own rival Catholic-style Christian church. Like There's not going to be severe consequences. Outside of some organizational similarities, the Catholics could not be more different from the Catholics. Uh, the Catholics had strict rules for fasting, including the total prohibition of meat. Uh, sexual intercourse was forbidden. Complete ascetic renunciation of the world was called for, which is not going to sit well uh, with, with sovereign leaders either. Right, Taking on a religion is one thing, new one. Taking on a new religion that calls for you to essentially renounce the culture you live in including your own government. That's another matter. Really? What, what, are you going to stop paying taxes now. You're not going to fight when we wage our next war now. Huh? Ah, okay. You're not going to add anything of value to our culture. Anything, nothing we can monetize. No, you're just going to be a weird monk wandering around the countryside, just thinking about the nature of the universe all, all day long. Huh? Ah, no, no, that actually doesn't work for us. We may have to get rid of you before the uh, the cancer to our rule that you represent uh, spreads to the rest of our kingdom. And, and if you're wondering who would join such a strict religion, well, you know, like who's willing to give up sex? Well, not everyone had to be that strict. The Catholic Church grew in popularity partly because you didn't have to follow all the rules to be part of the faith. There was two groups within the church. There was the the perfect and the believers. Now, the perfect, like the monks, they were set apart from the mass of believers by a ceremony of initiation. They devoted themselves to contemplation, were expected to maintain the highest moral standards. They were essentially, you know, again, priests, kind of monks of this new uh, variety of Christianity. And these believers were not expected, like the rest of them, to attain the lofty standards of the perfect they just kind of, you know, uh, had to be decent people and uh, agree with the biblical interpretation. And the Cathars took a Gnostic approach to the biblical uh, – uh, to biblical, excuse me, interpretation. They were they, they were real loosey-goosey with it, like uh, kind of incredibly so. Uh, the Cathar doctrines of creation led them to rewrite the biblical story. They devised an elaborate mythology <laughs> to replace it. They viewed much of the Old Testament with skepticism. Some of them rejected it altogether. Uh, The Orthodox doctrine of the incarnation was rejected. Jesus was no longer the son of God. He was, he was merely an angel. His human sufferings and death were an illusion. So obviously all of this doesn't sit well with the Catholic church either. These guys are like, uh, they're making a mockery of what they consider the Bible to be. And these Catholics are are teaching other peasants, living within the boundaries of traditionally Catholic countries as shit. They're fucking everything up, you know? Uh, And then they fuck up big time when they openly and severely criticize the worldliness and corruption of the Catholic church itself. I, I think you can guess what happens next. What happens next is a word from our sponsors. Pow, motherfucker. Bet you didn't see that coming. Time stuck is brought to you today by 4 Hymns. 4 is a one-stop shop for hair loss, skincare, sexual wellness for men. 4 Hims has medical-grade solutions, real doctors, and known generic equivalents to brand-name prescriptions that can help you keep your hair, among other things. You can order Finasteride off the website for a great price, by the way. And I know because I use Finasteride to treat hair loss. I'm taking it for about four years now. Seriously. Uh, I, uh, my hair started to really like thin out suddenly back around 2014, maybe 2013. I wasn't ready for it. I, uh, I was like, okay, maybe I'll try something. I started taking finasteride. No side effects that I've noticed and, and much thicker hair than I had back then. That's how it worked out for me. It varies for every, every person, but that's how it worked out for me. So, uh, you know, for Hims, they're not just selling weird, like herbal supplements. This shit isn't like dried rhino horn powder. It's not some dot crystal snake oil. It's prescription solutions. No waiting room, no doctor's visit. Just go to forhims.com. Check out the variety of hair loss products they have. Also, sexual products for stuff like erectile dysfunction. Don't go chickatilo. Don't try to wrestle away your dysfunction. What's this big deal? I wrestle to make limp shame heart pride. Don't do that. Go to forhimps. They have all kinds of other stuff, man. Go to, go to the time suck app, click their sponsor button, or go to forhimscom slash time suck. That's 4hymns, for f o r h I m s dot com slash time suck. For him slash time suck, and you get a trial month of everything you need for your hair. For only $5, while supplies last. Do it. All right, back to the Cathars. What happened? What happened when they dared to openly criticize the official church of the Roman Empire? You guessed it. The authorities of both church and state unite to get rid of these troublesome motherfuckers. In in 1184, Pope Lucius III issues a papal bull. Uh, That's when the pope would release a bull. Uh, uh, ordained by God to fucking kill heathens. And that bull would trample the countryside, just fucking just mayhem. No, uh, issued the papal bull, which was an official edict or command handed down from the Pope to give local, ah, my God, local bishops in France the authority to deal with Cathars. Now, these Cathars are going to be interrogated, and if their beliefs do not match Church doctrine, they will be labeled as heretics, and they will be dealt with severely. Well, the bishops weed out a few here and a few there, but the problem is just too big for the bishops to effectively deal with in this manner. So, A lot of communities in southern France are outnumbered by cathars now. They're unable to get the proper amount of stake burning accomplished. So in 1208 CE, a crusade is called for. Uh, in 2008, a war, or more accurately, a series of wars uh, breaks out in southern France. Modern writers refer to this, uh, these wars as the Cathar wars. Traditionally, they were referred to as the uh, Albigensian Crusade, a formal crusade in the full sense of the word preached and directed by the papacy, offering participants the remission of sins and an assured place in heaven. The Crusaders regarded themselves as being on God's business and referred to themselves as pilgrims. And from the first major siege at uh, Beze in 1209, the war became one of French and their allies against the independent people of the Languedoc and their allies, uh, um, Languedoc being a former province of southern France, an area that essentially governed itself apart from the rest of France, if not formally so uh, for a time due largely to the Cathars. And then instead of Catholics against Cathars, it was up until 1242 at least, consistently Catholics on one side against Cathars and actually other Catholics fighting on behalf of the Cathar neighbors on the other side. And this crusade would last for 20 years. And various historians would uh, later label it as an uh, act of religious genocide. The Catholic Church attempted to exterminate an entire other religious culture. Church condoned violence by mid 2009. Around 10,000 crusaders had gathered in uh, Lyon before uh, marching south. A large number came from. uh, Northern France, some had volunteered from England. The Crusaders started to capture uh, – they started by capturing, excuse me, the small village of Servian. Then they headed for Bizet, arriving on July 21st, 1209 CE, under the command of the papal Legate Arnaud uh, Arnod, uh Almeric. They started to besiege the city, calling on the Catholics within to come out and demanding that the Catholics surrender. Well, they didn't do that. Neither group did as commanded. The Catholics didn't come out, and the Catholics didn't surrender. So the Crusaders marched right through the gates of the city. Uh, when the gates were opened to negotiate some kind of compromise, uh, uh no compromise today. You didn't do what we said. So the entire population is slaughtered and then the city itself is burnt to the fucking ground. Yeah. It was reported that, uh, uh, Amalric when asked how to distinguish Catholics from Catholics in this, in the battle said, kill them all. God will know his own. Wow. That is some cold blood shit. And, uh, after the destruction of this town, most other Catholic strongholds surrendered. Yeah, I, I bet they did. And they were either uh, banished, the cathars were either banished from their communities, allowed to convert to Catholicism, or, you know, burned at the stake. If if they did fight back, they were butchered. And uh, like so many aspects of today's story, the Crusades deserves its own suck. So I won't get into too many details about the Crusades today. Uh, There were revolts. There were uh, some prolonged sieges. There were occasional breaks in the fighting. All in all, again, this goes on for about two decades, which seems, you know, it seems like way over uh, one decade too long. Two decades of continual extermination of these heretics. Man, I guess they were just hard to get rid of. Then in 1234, the first true widespread papal inquisition has begun. Previous inquisitions, as I stated earlier, they'd been carried out by local bishops. You know, this shit was small time no. now. Now it's time for a big time inquisition. Essentially, the crusades, they, they had done all they could do to get rid of large, openly Cathar populations in southern France. However, still a bunch of sneaky Cathars lurking about in the shadows. Bunch of heretics having the audacity to live within papal jurisdiction but not believe what the Pope wanted them to believe. Those cheeky bastards. I mean, sure, they'd show up at church. They'd shake your hand. They'd kneel. They'd stand. They'd kneel and they'd stand some more. But they're just going through the motions. They're phonies. If you, if you looked if you looked them close, you could see a little Catholic glint in their eye. There's some fake Catholics. So Pope Gregory the fourth in 1234, or the 9th, excuse me, 1234 CE, damn Roman numerals, uh, established a former inquisition. Formal. Inquisition, to, to uh, root out the rest of these heretical bastards. And it lasted the rest of the 13th century and for a great part of the 14th century. That's a long fucking time. It succeeded in crushing uh, Catholicism as a popular movement. It, it's done. drives It drives its uh, you know very few remaining adherents deep, deep underground and then pretty much just fades away. Punishment for Catholics varied greatly under this Inquisition. Most frequently, former Catholics were, were made to wear yellow crosses atop their garments as a sign of outward penance. After they converted to Catholicism, uh, others would have to make obligatory pilgrimage, which which often included fighting against Muslims. It's like, you believe what the pope wants you to believe now? Yeah? Well, you know, I'm not convinced. Once you head to the Iberian Peninsula, go kill some Muslims and prove it. Uh, Visiting a local naked – a church, excuse me, naked once each month to be scourged was also a common punishment during this Inquisition. I swear to not just make that up. That's not one of my weird tales. Yep, they would have to, uh, once a month, uh, strip down, butt naked, man or woman, and, uh, you know, show up at church uh, to be embarrassed and shamed for being formerly a Catholic. That's, uh, that's an odd one. Uh, all right. I believe you. You're a Catholic now. However, some of the other priests aren't so sure. And that was pretty naughty of you to be a Catholic in the first place. So I'm going to need you to show up at the church once a month. Let's just say the 15th. And I'm going to need you to be butt naked. And I'm going to whip your naked bottom with a switch, okay? Now, sometimes when I'm whipping your bottom, it might seem to might seem to look like I'm starting to get a boner, but I'm not. That's just what that's just the way my robe gets wrapped up and twisted sometimes when I'm doing my whipping. And it might even look like I take that boner out from underneath my priestly robes and uh, and that you can see me holding it in my hand and stroking it back and forth. And that's not the case. That's not what that's not what's happening. That's not a boner you're seeing. It's a it's a scroll. It's a scroll I hold sometimes in my hand for for strength. It's a, it's a scroll of important scripture. It's a rock hard veiny scroll that keeps me focused on the whipping. And it might feel at one point like I'm sticking that scroll in and out and then in and out and then in and out again of your butthole. That's not what I'm doing. That's part of what being whipped feels like. Sometimes it feels like something's getting shoved in your bottom. Sometimes being whipped feels like a like a hard but also soft at the same time scroll is going in and out of your butt for a while and sometimes getting whipped makes it sound like I'm starting to breathe really heavy. And sometimes being whipped makes it start to look like I'm getting really sweaty and then it makes it seem like there's some kind of liquidy gel in your colon and then I whip you a few more times and then I go lay down and take a nap and I'm weird around you for the next week that's all that's all part of the whipping process it's not what you think it is and even if it is it's all it's what God wants it's all it's all part of the penance what's what's this big deal it's just a bit of wrestling it's better than burning sorry not sorry it's not like uh, I'm not sorry it's not like, it's not like there isn't a long-standing tradition of extreme sexual misconduct within the ranks of the Catholic Church as I had to get that out of my system now, Cathars, Cathars were slow to repent, a lot of them. And uh, when they were, uh, they would suffer imprisonment, loss of property, and, of course, painful death, uh, usually by being burned alive, which sounds really terrible. And as you can imagine, the, the power this Inquisition gave local uh, bishops and magistrates did lead to widespread abuse, as I was joking about there. I mean, as, as would happen in later Inquisitions as well. Some local official, you know, he wants a young maiden to give up the good, She's not interested in him. Well, she's, you know, maybe she's looking a little Cathar-like now. Are you sure you're not a Cathar? Seems like you. It seems like you are. You suddenly seem very heretical to me. I can either tell the bishop what I'm starting to think about you, or you can get down on your knees and, in a roundabout way, you can uh, pray that I uh, change my mind and forgive you. Uh, meanwhile, while the inquisitions continued, there's still a, a, a few Cathar strongholds left. I have no idea how. Uh, before these inquisitions were over, you'd think after several decades of crusades, and inquisitions, the Catholics would have gotten rid of all the Cathars, but there were apparently a couple sneaky, resilient bastards. You know, they had a few villages, still a couple of castles left. They were not going not gonna to give up that sweet, impoverished, let's do nothing but talk about God all day, Cathar lifestyle without a fight. Uh, from May 1243 to March 1244, Cathar fortress of uh, Montsoure was besieged by the troops fighting for the Archbishop of Narbonne, and on March 16th, 1244, a large massacre goes down where over two thousand. Cathar perfects are burnt at once in an enormous pyre that would come to be known as the field of burned the field of the burned near the foot of the cha- castle god dang man field of the burned is a lot like uh the field of dreams if your dream is to be burned alive with a lot of other people instead of playing baseball uh after that the members of the faith became even more secretive about their beliefs uh, and they were harder to find of course they were church didn't stop looking they continued to interrogate torture and kill people suspected of being Cathers finally by about 1350 CE, uh catharism has been completely obliterated. Just, you know, just go fuck yourself, Radio Shack. You had your fun, but Amazon wishes you to no longer exist. And Amazon gets what Amazon wishes. And yes, I do realize it may seem weird for me to shit on Amazon <laughs> in a joking way, considering I have an Amazon affiliate link on my website timesecpodcast.com where you can click be directed back to Amazon to do your shopping and support the show. However, just like you couldn't play ball with the Catholic Church, you know, in uh in medieval Europe unless you unless you, you know, Uh, or you couldn't oppose him, excuse me, unless you wanted to be financially crippled or killed. Very difficult to function as well, uh, you know, as a tech business in Northern Idaho and not, you know, swing through amazon.com from time to time. It it is what it is. Okay, so it's a little recap. Let's, uh, now that we've set up uh, a little inquisitional context, let's get into a recap. But before we do, quick word from another sponsor. Awesome sponsor. What do the Holy Grail, Nefertiti's tomb, and Michael Rockefeller have in common? They're gone. Well, what happened? Where the hell did they go? The search for these answers lies in a new mystery podcast called Gone. If you're a fan of Time Suck, uh, if you love mysteries, this podcast is full of them. The hosts of Gone examine historic disappearances. The theories these disappearances have spawned. If something disappeared, they're looking for it. They dive deep into the past. I know you Time Suckers like that as they explore the stories behind everything that vanished throughout history. Each episode analyzes in-depth research to figure out what happened to these missing people, places, and items. So check out some episodes on the Amber Room, D.B. Cooper, the lost city of uh, Tacum, right now. And I know you want D.B. Cooper. You guys have been bugging me for months uh, to suck on that vanishing, uh, mysterious, playing hijacking son of a bitch. And with a new episode coming out every other Monday, uh, you can expect episodes on the Hemingway's Lost Manuscripts, Blackbeard's Treasure, and many more coming soon. So visit Apple Podcasts, tune in, Spotify, Google Play, wherever you listen to podcasts and search for G.O.N.E. And again, that's G.O.N.E. That's G.O.N.E. Uh, Or you can visit parcast.com slash gone, start listening to that, and that's parcast, P-A-R-C-A-S-T.com slash gone. You can listen now. Okay, all right, now for that recap. To recap, it really sucked to not be Catholic if you didn't care for not being, or if you didn't care for being burned alive. Uh, The end. No. Uh, uh, Recap is after a few initial centuries of figuring out what it meant to be Christian, you know, how to organize And uh, as a new religion in the first few centuries after the death of Christ, a group of Christian Orthodox believers living within the Roman Empire began to model their church structure after Roman government, set up church administrative hierarchy, complete with bishops in many of the Roman cities, including Rome itself. And then Rome's bishop becomes the head bishop, you know, that becomes Pope. Church morphs into the Vatican after Emperor Constantine transitions the official religion of the Roman Empire into the Christian Empire. And, uh, and he helps add structure and governmental support to the new church, to the Council of Nicaea, successive emperors minus Julian the Apostate, also Christian, strengthen and support the early church. And again, I know this is an overview that skips over a lot of important councils and figures who did this or that, but this episode is already detail heavy. Don't need to clutter it up further. And then once a church has risen into a position of extreme power and influence, it keeps – it. or excuse me, it fights to keep that power and influence. That's what powerful and influ- influential people and organizations governments and regimes almost always do, right? In order to keep a stranglehold on being the only official religion of the most powerful empire in the world, it did what it felt and needed to do to squash out competition. There were crusades designed to exterminate Muslims and sometimes also Jews and pagans in foreign lands, expand the various kings and queens empires. Soldiers were essentially told that God will forgive them of all their wartime sins because they're fighting for the glory of God. So kill them all. God will sort them out later. And then sometimes afterwards and sometimes alongside the Crusades, of which there were many, there were inquisitions designed to squash out opposing theological thoughts from within the existing boundaries of nations, right, under the influence of the Vatican. And the first formalized wide-scale papal decreed inquisition was used to wipe the Cathars out of southern France in the 13th century. Now, let's give a brief history of the land known now as the nation of Spain to establish uh, how the Spanish Inquisition went down. Spanish Inquisition, a prolonged and especially brutal Inquisition, you know, kicked off about two centuries later. So let's dive deep into a time-suck timeline that will keep right on marching up and through Spanish Inquisition. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time-suck timeline. 1.4 million years ago. Let's start there. The earliest record of hominids living in Western Europe has been found in the Spanish cave of Atapuerca. Flint tool found there dates from 1.4 million years ago. Early human fossils date to roughly 1.2 million years ago, which proves that tools existed before humans. Planted by space lizards, the Anunnaki. Wake up, humans. Get off your knees. No, that's just what they happened to find. Uh, Before the Roman conquest, the major cultures along the Mediterranean coast were called Iberians, the Celts in the interior and northwest. There was the uh, Lusitanians in the west and the uh, Tartessians in the southwest, the seafaring, Phoenicians, Carthaginians, and Greeks successfully uh, successively established trading settlements along the eastern and southern coast. The first Greek colonies, such as the one at uh, Emporion, Emporian, uh, were found along the uh, northeast coast in the 9th century BCE, leaving the south coast open to the Phoenicians. The peoples whom the Rome, uh, the peoples whom the Romans met at the time of their invasion in, in what is now known as Spain were the Iberians inhabiting an area stretching from the northeast part of the Iberian Peninsula through down to the southeast. Uh, the Celts mostly inhabited the inner and northwest part of the peninsula. The Greeks were responsible for the name Iberia apparently naming it after the river Iber uh, in the in the sixth century BCE. The Carthaginians arrived in Iberia, struggling first with the Greeks and shortly after with the newly arriving Romans for control of the Western Mediterranean. Their most important colony was Carth- Carthago Nova, which is the Latin name of modern day uh, Cartagena. Now, Hispania was the name used for the Iberian Peninsula under Roman rule from the second century BCE. The populations of the peninsula were gradually culturally Romanized. Uh, local leaders were admitted into the Roman aristocratic class. And then Christianity made its way into Spain around the time the Romans showed up. Biblically, according to Romans 1528, Roman Catholicism and Christianity as a whole began in Spain when St. Paul went to Hispania to teach the gospel there after visiting the Romans along the way. Attempts were made from the late 1st century to the late 3rd century CE to establish the new Christian church in the Iberian Peninsula. After the fall of the Western Roman Empire in the 5th century, parts of Hispania uh, came under the control of the Germanic tribes, the Vandals, Suebi, Visigoths, Visigoths, excuse me. In the years following 410 CE, Spain was taken over by the Visigoths, who had uh, been converted to Arian Christianity, in, uh, an early offshoot. Around 419, Arianism being a you know another early competitor to the modern Catholic Church. Now, Arianism asserts uh, the belief that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, who was begotten by God the Father at a point in time, is distinct from the Father, and is therefore subordinate to the Father. And the Visigothic kingdom established their capital in Toledo, Spain, not Ohio. Uh, Ohio popping out r- uh, right now in the story would really. Add an unnecessary level of confusion to this suck. Uh, Visigoth rule led to the expansion of Arianism in Spain, and then in 587 CE, Ricard or uh, Recared, the Visigothic king in Toledo, was, con- was converted to Catholicism and launched a movement to unify doctrine. Right? Catholics rejoiced. Everyone else trembled with fear. Within a few years of this uh, conversion, surprise, surprise, followers of uh, Arianism labeled heretics. That's how you do shit, right? Along with local Jews. Arians were forced to convert to Catholicism or be tossed the fuck out of the country or be savagely tortured and or killed, which is, which probably, you know, included some burning. Uh, I was thinking, man, if, if marshmallows and chocolate bars would have existed back then, I wonder if anyone would have ever like cooked up a little s'more action while some heretic was being burned to life. It does seem like a waste of a perfectly good fire, man. They set up these big fires, you know, that wasn't, uh, wasn't easy. Had to use a lot of wood. I'm sure, you know, why not cook some snacks up? Maybe get a shish kebab go- action going. Maybe lean up a little grill on the side of the wood pile. Cook up a steak, get a little extra sizzle that day. Then, in the seventh century uh, Islamic Arabs came and they and they fucked up everything for the Iberian Catholics. The Pope was so mad, I, said, I don't want him to be here. And they came anyway. They were having so much fun introducing people to the peaceful teachings of Christ and then burning them. They didn't jump on board, you know. And then the and then the Muslims ruined it. In six eighty nine CE, the Moors, those northern uh, African uh, Muslim nom- nomads, conquered Malila, uh, Malia. I believe he's how it said, uh, a city geographically located on the northwestern coast of Africa that I want to go to now. It's culturally connected to the Iberian Peninsula. It has been for many centuries. It's actually part of Spain today. Did you know that Spain possessed a tiny amount of land on the northern coast of Africa? I, I did not. Uh, they have two little cities in northern Africa they have been around forever. And uh, Malia is one of them. It's less than five square miles in size. Uh, just under 80,000 people living there and uh, very close to the rest of Spain. The Strait of Gibraltar, the gateway to the Mediterranean Sea from the Atlantic that little opening that separates Europe from Africa is, is less than 20 miles across. Uh, by 709 CE, the Arabs had conquered uh, Quetta, the other Spanish city located in Africa. It's a tiny bit bigger, just over seven square miles, just over 80,000 people. And then in 711, uh, in 711 CE, uh, the Muslims uh, headed into Europe. They were sick of wearing robes and turbans, and they wanted to feel out what life was like in the land of the banana hammock. They wanted to oil their bodies, lay out by the pool, Wear tiny swimsuits that almost fully contain their balls. You know, stare at women gratuitously much younger than themselves as people do in southern Europe. But for real, uh, they headed north uh, in 711 CE. They crossed the Strait of Gibraltar, started taking control of of much of the Iberian Peninsula. By 718, Muslims dominated a lot of modern-day Spain. And then over the next several centuries, the Muslims ruled over a lot of Spain under various caliphs. They were constantly fighting various Christian kingdoms, trying to push back into their territory. There was the Umayyad Caliphate, and then there was the Abbasid Caliphate. These Muslims now uh, rule in a good deal of the peninsula in the southern half. And while the Muslims pushed the Christians out of much of Spain, they never pushed them all the way out of it. There were still the Christian kingdoms in the north of Asturias, Leon, Castile, Navarre, Aragon, Portugal, and the central northern western portions of the peninsula. And those medieval Christian nations fought a lot with each other. Uh, it really is crazy how many different ways Europe has been carved up over the years. We, we just don't have an equivalent in North America. There was the American Indians and then a few European colonial powers, you know, laid claim to lands that they generally never governed in any real meaningful way. You know, like like, like a lot of American Indians w- would live their whole lives on land that had, you know, been claimed since before their birth by some European power, and they would never meet a single European person. They would never encounter European culture in any way whatsoever. You know, they never even knew what laws they were supposed to follow, but the medieval peasants, oh, they knew. They knew what was going on. Uh, their lives sucked. One day you're living under this Muslim caliph, and the next day you're living under this new Christian king, and then you're living under a different king the next year. Practices a different version of Christianity. Then back to some other caliph the next year, and you have some, you know, asshole lord or baron to deal with. You know, some local dude. Then you get, then you get a new lord, a new baron, and then maybe you know afterwards, then the old baron comes back to be the new baron. And you got this fuckhead ransack in your village one year. Some other asshole storm in your castle the next year. And then even when no one's ransacking anything, you anything, you got the religious persecutions to deal with. Every disease is incurable. No one owns a microwave. No one is selling gold bond body powder for especially humid days. Balls are always a little fucking wet and itchy. Zero air conditioning, no bug spray, no birth control, no maple bars, no apple fritters. Lots of doctors who have serious hankerings for amputations and leeches. Fuck all of that. If I ever see a time machine, I'm going to break it before someone goes back and ruins stuff. So thankful to live in the modern world, man. And then, uh, to make life even worse back then, there were inquisitions on top of all of that. And things were especially turbulent on the Iberian Peninsula in the Middle Ages. In the 10th century, things got a tiny bit better for a little while. Especially tolerant new Muslim leaders, the Caliphate of, uh, Cordoba, they passed laws regarding religious tolerance, allowing Jews, Christians, Muslims, all live in peace together. I mean, non-Muslims would have to pay a special tax to the Caliph, you know, but if, uh, Uh, that they paid it, you know, then they were allowed to live their lives, which was a good deal for the day. But the good deal didn't last long. Things got worse again in the 12th century when a new, not as tolerant caliphate comes into power, the uh, Almohad Caliphate, and suddenly Christians and Jews, uh, they're fleeing for their lives. And then after centuries of battle between various Christian kingdoms and Muslim caliphates on the Iberian Peninsula, King Ferdinand, Queen Isabella show up. You know, and they wrapped up uh, this incredibly long period of fighting the Moors, the centuries-long effort by Christian rulers to repel the Muslims back the fuck out of the peninsula A period referred to by historians as the Reconquista uh, finally ends in 1492 after a big, bloody decade-long military campaign against the Muslim Moors. The same year, you know, Columbus sailed across the Atlantic, kicking off the European colonization of the Americas. The Beginning of uh, King and Ferdinand and Queen Isabella's campaign, there were approximately half a million Moors in present-day southern Spain. Over the next several years, 100,000 would die or be enslaved. 200,000 just got the fuck out. And another 200,000 were still living in the area. King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella, they were not as tolerant uh, to the remaining non-Christian citizens as the previous Muslim rulers had been to Christians and other non-Muslims. Also in 1492, the entire Jewish community of the peninsula, roughly 200,000 people will be thrown out by Ferdinand and Isabella. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm getting ahead of myself. The Inquisition started before that, 1478. So we should back up. And uh, and before we head back there, we need to talk about who who these new monarchs were for a second. Who were King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella? Who who were this monarchical duo? monarchial monarchial maybe that's better well honestly like uh like so many things we have to touch on uh, for context in this episode they deserve their own suck as well uh whenever i dig into medieval history i begin to understand why dan carlin podcast end up being like 15 hours long talking about one historical event <laughs> there's just so much you can get wrapped up in uh well remember all those little christian kingdoms in the northern portion of the iberian peninsula that have been fighting the moors for centuries well in 1469 Ferdinand of one of, of Aragon, one of these places, marries Isabella of Castile, another one, thus beginning a cooperative reign that would eventually unite all the dominions of Spain and elevate the nation into a dominant world power. Ferdinand and Isabella incorporated a number of independent Spanish dominions into their new kingdom. In 1492, when the request uh, reconquest of Granada from the Moors was completed, they had everything but Portugal locked up. and uh, And Spain has held dominion over the vast majority of the uh, Iberian Peninsula to this day. And they're still actually largely a Catholic uh, country. Uh, You know, uh, Ferdinand and Isabella were the first Catholic monarchs of this new solidified nation, and it remains very Catholic. Actually, so Catholic, uh, contraception was still actually illegal until 1977. Not kidding. Uh, And, and, you know, and that uh, can be traced directly back to the reign of Ferdinand and Isabella. You know, the two joint monarchs, so Catholic, they were actually called by historians the Catholic monarchs. If you Google Catholic monarchs, they come up first. Uh, they were also second cousins back when cousin fucking was hot. He was, was encouraged, not shunned. A lot of cousin fuckers piled up in the suck uh, as we go into historical uh, sucks. Not not being as smart as Einstein, they weren't first cousin fuckers, but they were intelligent enough to get a little of that hot second cousin action we all crave and desire. Uh, Ferdinand was only 17 when they got married. Isabella was 61. She was 61 years old. You know what? If it's fair for men, it's fair for women. And she would bear him 12 children and her womb itself would fall out along with the last child. That's ridiculous. He was 17. She was 18. They got married. She was the heir apparent to the kingdom of Castile. He was the heir apparent to the kingdom of Aragon and their union was the beginning of modern day Spain. Uh, You know, even if technically Aragon and Castile were still separate kingdoms during their rule, constitutionally the areas that made up uh, Spain, Castile, Aragon, Catalonia, Valencia, Granada, when it was taken over, they were all separate entities. But through the marriage, they would all work together as one. Uh, And then their grandson, the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, he would officially unify the Spanish Empire years later. And why did these two monarchs launch what what would have been the most infamous – or what would become, excuse me, the most infamous Inquisition the world had ever seen? Well, there's a lot of theories about this, Uh, ones that historians speculate about to this day. To me it seems pretty simple, but to me it seems like you know, first uh, there's the obvious answer because they were both super Catholic and they were in charge. And when you were Catholic and powerful, you wanted to keep your power – and an inquisition was just one of the tools you had at your disposal to do that. Uh, second, it was in their best interest to have cultural consistency. They were the first monarchs of what would be known as the Spanish Empire. They were they were coming out of an era of so much Games of Thrones type turmoil. Uh, they were jointly ruling two kingdoms that had recently been composed of you know of other kingdoms, and there had been centuries of constant change. They needed to solidify everything. Third, they were ambitious. You know, these are the monarchs who launched Columbus, paved the way for Europe's entrance into colonization and epic plunder of the New World. And you know, in order to not only stabilize but expand their empire, they needed everyone to be on the same team, and that team was going to be the Catholic team. And so, you know, they launched an Inquisition to culturally homogenize and unify their new land to strengthen their new empire, which would allow them to colonize and then homogenize other lands and strengthen it further. Uh, fourth, you have to allow the possibility—you have to allow for the possibility they they did genuinely believe, yeah, genuinely believe. That through an inquisition, through forced adherence to Catholicism, they were doing God's work and saving souls. Do I think that was their primary motivation? No, I don't. And there's a lot of historical evidence that says that that was not the case. Uh, I do think the primary motivation was political, as do uh, pretty much all historians. But, but that is just, I guess, you know, somewhat opinion. You, you can't know what was in their heart of hearts. Uh, and there are a lot of other possibilities. If we went over all of them pretty soon I'd be saying, uh, and 33rd there was this guy doing that thing and this lady was pushing this agenda. Uh, there was a lot more Anti-Semitism was a factor as it always was in basically Christian Europe. Uh, the Jews were constantly falling somewhere in between being tolerated and being persecuted. Um, this was the Inquisition was a way to kind of get rid of some of them, all of them in an area. Uh, there was fear of another Ottoman invasion, you know there was general bigotry by the people uh, who were Catholic against people who were not Catholic. Uh, There were political rivalries that could be uh, dispatched and disposed of through an Inquisition, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, We don't need to dig into all of that. What was really interesting about the Spanish Inquisition is that they were the ones who launched it. This was a new thing. This idea did not come from Rome. Actually, Rome didn't think it was a good idea. It came from Spain. It came from the throne, the throne using Rome to control its population instead of the other way around. That's right. This Inquisition, unlike the previous one we talked about, that shut down the Cathars, not launched by the papacy. Ferdinand and Isabella launched one themselves. And the pope was kind of, you know, his, his hand was kind of forced to go along with it. Uh, the church probably was, you know, in some ways more than happy to help. You know, they wanted to spread their religious empire and the new newly uh, uh, emerging Spanish superpower. You know, they made it for a good ally. So uh, so Pope Sixtus IV, he did sign off uh, on this thing in 1478, and then shit got crazy. Pope Sixtus, by the way, pretty, pretty cool pope, pretty famous pope. His accomplishments as pope uh, included building the Sistine Chapel, the creation of the Vatican Archives, pretty significant accomplishments. He was a patron of the arts. Uh, the group of artists that he brought together introduced the early Renaissance into Rome, you know, with the first masterpieces of the city's new artistic age. But uh, but 1478, this is when this shit really kicks off. Uh, Fray Alonso de Ojeda, the Dominican friar from Seville, has the queen's ear, and he convinces her that there are a bunch of people in the kingdom pretending to be Catholic, but really, they're Jews. And there's a lot of them. And God knows what they're fucking talking about when they're holding their secret Jewish meetings. Probably talking about how tasty Christian babies are. Maybe talking about what demons they've been conjuring recently to take down the monarchy. Those are probably not accurate examples, but the point is he's worried. He's worried about the secret Jewish people. So then also in 1478, the Archbishop of uh, Seville uh, actually writes up and delivers a report to Queen Isabella corroborating this friar's concerns. Bunch of secret Jews hiding around working their Jew magic, using it against the kingdom. Uh, now, who knows how truly concerned Ferdinand and Isabella were when they got this report. You, you can make the historical argument that they, again, that they were faithful Catholics, truly suddenly worried about an attack you know, on the national faith from you know within their borders. Or they could have thought, you know, here's a good excuse to uh, to create the culture we want, uh, to create a, uh, a a more deep-rooted loyalty to the Catholic throne to only have Catholics in our land. Um, here's what they did next. They requested a papal bull in one of those official edicts establishing an inquisition in Spain in 1478 in response to the practice of Judaism. And in early 1478, Pope Sixtus IV he grants a bull permitting the monarchs to select and appoint two or three priests over forty years of age, you know, to act as inquisitors. It's a little baby decree given them. Okay, okay, you, you get a couple, you get a couple, all right. Do a little bit of inquisitive, but don't let it get out of hand. Um, I say he granted this, but really he didn't have a, he didn't have a real choice. If the pope would have turned these powerful monarchs down, which they would make clear later, would not be good for the pope's future. Uh, he wants to make this new burgeoning Catholic empire happy. Uh, most historians agree that King Ferdinand pressured Pope Sixtus IV uh, to agree to the Inquisition controlled by the monarchy by threatening to withdraw military support at a time when the Turks were a threat to Rome. Also, the Pope supposedly issued a bull to stop the Inquisition uh, a little bit later when got it got out of hand, but then was pressured into withdrawing it. You know, again by uh, by the, the the king and queen threatening to withdraw support for the for the uh, the papacy. You know, it was like, let us let us weed out who the fuck we want to weed out. Or when those Muslims come and knocking at your door, uh, I guess you'll just have to pray them away because we're not going to have our soldiers to help you. Well, Friar Tomás de uh, Torquemada, he assumed the title of Inquisitor General. His quest was to rid Spain of all heresy. Uh, the Spanish chronicler, uh, Sebastian de Almado or Olmedo, uh, called him the hammer of heretics, the light of Spain, the savior of his country, the honor of his order. And the drawings I've seen of this guy are exactly what I expected uh, him to look at, like This dude uh, would have for sure executed me for heresy. Uh, One smart-ass remark, one wrong twinkle in my eye, I get tortured and killed. He really, really didn't look like someone you wanted to be on their uh, bad side. He puts off a serial killer vibe, actually. And in a way, that's kind of what he'd become. You know, instead of choking out prostitutes in a van for some personal sexual satisfaction, he'd be torturing and burning heretics for, I don't know, uh, possibly sexual satisfaction. (laughs) Who knows? What his uh, personal reasoning was. Well, well, having two or three inquisitors isn't good enough for Ferdinand and Isabella. So on December, f- or November first, fourteen seventy eight, uh, Sixtus publishes another papal bull, giving them uh, exclusive authority to name new inquisitors, kind of at their discretion. But yeah, this is not good for anyone. For some reason, other than Ferdinand and Isabella, for some reason, uh, maybe because they didn't have text and email back then, uh, and it took longer to meet up and agree on stuff and put plans into action. The first uh, auto de fe was held in Seville uh, on February 6, 1481, so it took a couple of years to get going. And six people were burned alive for being heretics. And from there, the Inquisition grew rapidly within the kingdom of Castile. By 1492, tribunals existed in eight Castilian cities. Now, the auto de fe, that was the final step in the Inquisition process. It involved a Catholic mass, prayer, public procession of those found guilty, marching down the street, and then a reading of their sentences. Uh, an inquisition usually began with the public proclamation of a grace period of 40 days. Anyone who was guilty or knew of someone who was guilty was urged to come confess if the accused were charged, and then, then they were presumed guilty. So that was fun. You could be like, I, I saw Jane holding some kind of Jewish ritual in her house last night, and then I heard her say she hated Jesus, and she fucked two sailors last week when her husband was out of town. And they would just be like, all right, guilty. Let's grab her. And Jane was like, but he's a liar. Prove it in court, Jane. Prove it in court. For now, you're a disgusting Jewish slut. Uh, I'm simplifying, but not by much, man. Guilty until proven innocent. It's because of shit like that that the uh, whole innocent until proven guilty, uh, that's why that's such a big deal for Americans, you know, and especially for early Americans. That's why, they were, you know, it's such a, such a huge new thing. Because when they found it in the United States, because it was somewhat of a foreign concept. In Europe, a lot of times it was guilty until proven innocent. Uh, officials could apply torture during the trial to get the info they, they desired from the – or needed from the accused. We'll talk about that soon in uh, a lot of detail. Uh, inquisitors were required to hear and record all testimony. Proceedings would be kept secret. The identity of witnesses was not known to the accused. After the trial, officials proclaimed the prisoner's sentence and administered it in the auto de fe. The auto de fe was, uh, was not an impromptu event. It was a thoroughly orchestrated, orchestrated event preparation would begin a month in advance uh, only incurred when the Inquisition authorities believed there was enough prisoners in a given community or city to have a big uh, uh, kind of spectacle the ritual would take place in public squares last several hours with ecclesiastical and civil authorities in attendance you know boarding the city's plaza you know an all-night vigil could be held you know with prayers ending in mass at daybreak and a breakfast feast. We'll be prepared for all who joined in. That's so weird to me. Going to be a long day, everybody. Going to be a lot of buildup to a horrific mass execution. So uh, let's load up on some brekkie. Come on. Let's get some crepes. Breakfast burritos, maybe some eggs benny. Let's load up. Come on. Uh, not going to get a chance to grab a meal again until after all those heretics are burned to a crisp. Speaking of that, let's fry up some chicken. Chicken and waffles. Why not? It's breakfast feast time. Uh, the ceremony of public pendants, uh that began with the procession of prisoners. Uh, they bore elaborate visual symbols on their garments and bodies. They uh, served to identify these symbols, the specific acts of treason, you know, of the accused whose identities were kept secret until the very last moment. In addition the prisoners, they usually had no idea what the outcome of their trial would be, uh, until the very last moment, until they're sentencing. How fucking nervous are you? Everyone else is hitting the breakfast buffet and you don't know, you know, like they're loading up on orange muffins and bacon. You don't know if you're just going to be whipped a little bit and then allowed to go home or burned alive in a few hours. Uh the prisoners were taken outside uh, the city walls to a place called the Burning Place, which is fun. You know, they have a little designated spot for burning people. That's where the sentences would be read. Prisoners would be uh either then acquitted, you know. Uh the ones who were who acquitted, they would fall to their knees in relief. I bet they would, a lot of thankful tears in that situation. And then the condemned would just be punished in front of everyone. It wasn't always burning. You know, it varied. It could be, you know, some, some, you get flagellated, you get some whipping for a while. Uh, you know, and then that was like the light end. And then the heavy end was being burnt. Um, that was the, that was the leadoff single of the hit Inquisition album, the old burn at the stake. That was the, that was the main, that was the main favorite. 1483, in addition to the Inquisition, Ferdinand starts kicking Jews out of Southern Spain. As we said earlier, more Inquisitions are held in more towns. They'd set up in town and a new court would be announced like, with a 30-day grace period for confessions and the gathering of accusations by neighbors. Evidence that was used to identify a crypto-Jew, as they call them, those secret Jews, uh, would include stuff like the absence of chimney smoke on Saturdays. Because that could be a sign that a family might be secretly honoring the Jewish Sabbath. Or if somebody bought too many vegetables before Passover at the market, or if they bought some meat from a converted butcher, mm, might, have to, might have to get them uh, inquisitioned. Uh, and again, the court employed physical torture to extract confessions, man, uh, crypto, a lot of crypto Jews were allowed to confess and then do penance. Uh, but then if they relapsed, they were usually burned at the stake. You know, they got like one chance and they got burned. Uh, interesting note on the evidence they would use to find a uh, crypto Jews, man. Uh, again, uh, sometimes people living in Spain at this time really did adhere to Jewish customs. Again, this stuff is just so crazy to me. Uh, and and a lot of the people that may have been doing things that made them appear Jewish, uh, they had they had no idea those things were like uh, aligned with Jewish heritage, because because they didn't know about their heritage. They would get they would get killed for adhering to a custom they didn't know was Jewish because their parents or grandparents hadn't told them they were Jewish to to, to help them not be killed. Because uh, there a lot of times you know like their parents or grandparents maybe were Jewish and, and then there was a change in the guard and in the interest of self preservation they they stopped adhering to the Jewish faith, stopped talking about it, but they still had their own kind of just family customs, maybe some meal and diet and other types of customs. You know, every family has their favorite meals and little traditions, right? Well, what if your tradition of a big family dinner on Saturday, a uh, tradition that really, really just was a family dinner, had no religious meaning anymore, suddenly got you killed for being a crypto Jew heretic. That really happened to a lot of people just, just murdered over religious paranoia. Think about how many people have died in the history of the world due to nothing more than religious paranoia. What a, what a sad waste of life. A uh, new pope shows up in 1484, Pope Innocent VIII. He's not a big fan of all the heretic torture that's been going on in Spain. He doesn't care for it. And uh, he feels it's a bit too much. So he gave a speech, he's like, eh, it is too much. I feel it is too much, about it. No, he didn't give a speech. But, uh, you know, but he just felt like maybe it wasn't the best way to bring people into the faith. Vatican, you know, it's been getting, it's getting sent a lot of letters from Catholics over in the Iberian Peninsula saying that shit's just been out of hand. And then a lot of people are being tortured and uh, and killed that that are actually good Catholics. They haven't done anything. So he issues a new decree allowing Catholics in Spain, uh, if they are accused of heresy, they can appeal directly to the Vatican to have their case looked at by an outside source, by someone other than a bloodthirsty Spanish sadist. Well, King Ferdinand doesn't like that. This is his and Isabella's party, and no one's going to ruin it. No one's going to crash it. So in December 1484, he decrees death and confiscation to anyone trying to make use of that procedure without royal permission. (laughs) That's pretty fucked up. He's like, yes, you can, yes, you can talk to the church in Rome if you want your case looked at. Uh, but if you appeal directly to them, we're gonna kill you. And you have to go through us. And uh obviously we're not gonna let, you know, them know what you send to us because cause cause we wanna kill you. We would like to do it our way. Um so people start getting pissed off by this kind of stuff. They start getting riled about these inquisitions. There's a revolt against them in Aragon in 1485. And then one of the inquisitors uh, gets murdered that year, and then the public turns back in favor of the inquisition's it's fucking idiots. Uh, yeah, it's like they start to revolt, and then one of the inquisitors is killed, and they're like, oh no, but we didn't want that to happen. I guess, let's just, okay, all right. May- maybe they're doing the right thing. Let's just let it go back to the way it was. The inquisition was extremely active between 1418 and 1530. Different sources give different estimates of the number of trials and executions this period. Uh, some estimate about 2,000 executions, some many more actually. The great majority of these uh, believed to be of. Uh, People of Jewish origin, old church, or, ugh, old church documents put 91.6% of those judged in Valencia between 1484 and 1530 and 99.3% of those judged in Barcelona between 1484 and 1505 as being of Jewish origin. So there, clearly there's, there's some anti-Semitic stuff going on. Now, if you're wondering why some Jewish people were tortured and, and, and killed and others were tossed out of the country – I found out why that was. I found this very interesting. Under the law, they had only people claiming to be Christians could be subjected to an inquisition. Like if you were openly Jewish, you, you couldn't be put under inquisition. However, you could be thrown just the fuck out. Uh, so some Jewish people and some Muslim people as well would claim to be Christian in order to avoid being expelled from the country. Also at various times, there was very unfavorable taxes imposed upon non-Christians. So, you know, you had financial incentive to claim that you were Catholic. And then you would just hope and pray that no one ratted you out and, and you know, and, and you suffer the consequences. In 1502, the Inquisitional Court shifts focus a little bit uh, to Muslims and to secret Muslims now instead of, instead of the Jews. This happens after a decree on February 14th, 1502, where Muslims in Granada suddenly had to choose between conversion to Christianity or expulsion. That goes on for many years. 1560 and the Tribunal of Granada about in you know, between 1560 and 1571, 82% of those accused were Moriscos, Spanish Moors who'd accepted Christian baptism. Also in the 16th century, Protestants began showing up in Spain, not not in large numbers, but you know, here and there. Uh, After Martin Luther's reformation in 1517, suddenly there's all new types of Christians. And guess what? Even though they're not Catholic, still eligible for an inquisition. Oh, anti-Baptist, fucking you qualify. Get in there. Get on the rack. Go on, get in there. Uh, Homosexuals were targeted as well. The first sodomite was burned by the inquisition in Valencia in 1572. And uh, those accused included 19% clergy. 6% 6% nobles, 37% workers, ninety percent servants, and 18% soldiers and sailors. And that's those accused of, of sodomy. That was something that could get you uh, uh, thrown into an inquisition. Nearly all of almost 500 cases of sodomy between persons uh, concerned the relationship between an older man and an adolescent, often by coercion with only a few cases where the couple were consenting homosexual adults. So that makes it extra sad. A lot of times it was somebody preying on some young fucking boy, and then they would both be in trouble. About 100 of the total of the involved allegations uh, involved child abuse. Adolescents were generally punished more leniently than adults, but only when they were very young, under like 12, or when the case clearly concerned rape. That's that's the only time they had a chance to avoid punishment altogether. As a rule, the Inquisition condemned death uh, only to those sodomites over the age of 25 years. As about half of those tried uh, were under this age, you know, I guess that explains the, the relatively small percentage of death sentences handed down for that. Usually they were just tortured for a while. Uh, and then the Spanish Inquisition was limited uh, – excuse me, was not limited to just Spain. Wherever Spain went, like Latin and South America, the Inquisition went with it. In Mexico City during the 1590s, there was a wave of persecutions, stretched out over a decade. Its victims even included some kind of high, high-ranking people like Don Luis de uh, Cavajal. Uh, he was a colonial governor of New Mexico. Him and his family uh, you know, were uh, – died uh, because of an Inquisition. Forty-five suspected heretics were executed by way of Inquisition in Mexico in uh, 1601 alone. Uh, Later, all the way forward in the 18th and 19th centuries, Freemasons were targeted. Those boys' club members we talked about in bonus time suck 15, time suck 69. uh, The Roman Catholic Church regarded Freemasonry as heretical. It started in 1738 uh, they decreed this, and the suspicion of Freemasonry was potentially a capital offense. Spanish Inquisition records revealed two prosecutions in Spain, only a few more throughout the Spanish Empire. It didn't happen a lot, but it did happen. In 1815, Francisco uh, Javier de Mier y Campillo, the Inquisitor General of the Spanish Inquisition and the Bishop of Almeria, suppressed Freemasonry, denounced the lodges as societies which led to atheism, to sedition, and to all errors and crimes. He then instituted a purge during which Spaniards could be arrested on the charge of being suspected of Freemasonry. In 1818, Manuel uh, Santiago Vavar tried in Cordoba, was the last person to be uh, tried for being a crypto Jew during the Spanish Inquisition. And then on July 26, 1826, the last Inquisition of any kind uh, was held in Spain. The Spanish Inquisition came to an end. It, it condemned and executed, actually, uh, the school teacher, uh Cayetano Rapol for teaching heretical religious principles. The church wanted him burned, but civil authorities chose to hang him instead. They were like, well, look, we'll let you kill him. Uh, but we're not going to burn him. We've evolved past that. And that, that last uh, death takes us out of this timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. Okay, so before I conclude my thoughts on all this, uh, let's dig into what you you know you you really wanted to hear on this suck. Uh, You wanted to hear about some torture. I mean, that is what the Spanish Inquisition is really infamous for just outlandish torture the horrible things done to these poor people for hundreds of years so let's let's take a look at some of the uh, ways they would uh, you know gather confessions with today's Super Scary Stuff Super Scary Stuff To elicit the confessions the inquisitors were looking for, the accused were tortured. Tell them what they want to hear. Admit that your mother or father or neighbor or whoever is also a secret Jew or a secret Muslim or a blasphemer or a sodomite or whatever, and the pain will stop. Give us the name of your rabbi. Give us the name of your imam. Admit that you're not a Christian. Admit that you worship Nimrod. Say it. Hail Nimrod. Say it. Admit your devotion to the great space Sasquatch, Chupacabra thingy. Admit your allegiance to the giant god with suns for eyes who rides a black unicorn, the one who holds the Alpha and Omega in his ball sack, and hell in his butthole. Or is it Lucifina, you worship the great seductress, Satan's sister? Is that whose curvy body you bow down before? Say it, heretic. Say, hail hey, Lucifina. And if you think, well, why didn't people just say what the Inquisitors wanted them to say and have the torture stopped? Well, it's because if they admitted the heresy, uh, there was a real chance that, that, that while the torture would stop, they would also then be burned alive. Now, now technically, a confession obtained under torture was not valid. The inquisitors were supposed to wait a day to get the confession again when the accused was not in the middle of being tortured. But you know damn well that they would just be tortured again if they didn't fess up. So, so really, what's the difference? And I just don't believe all the historical accounts accounts taken by the torturers of how this went down. Uh, you, know, you know that there were cases when the rules just weren't followed at all. It just became pure, unadulterated sadism. People just, you know, using the Inquisition to, to further their own local political motivations or whatever. People just using it to, uh, you know be able to be sadists and somehow, you know, uh, have, have, have feel like they were, God was, you know, allowing them to do that. A lot of people died from the torture. Weren't supposed to, but they did. So, so what methods of torture did the priests implement? Well, starvation was a common torture tactic. Now I feel like starvation doesn't get taken as seriously as other forms of torture. It's not as sexy, but you know, it doesn't elicit the same type of fear as other more extreme forms of torture, like the rack or, you know, some other kind of medieval shit. But think about just being chained to a wall, which was a thing that happened. You know, or stuck in a cage, which also happened, and just not being given food—just how horrific! Just that alone would be not being physically tortured. You're just not given anything to eat. How bad would just that make you want to confess? I don't think I've ever gone one full day ever in my life without some kind of food. Like, like I hate it when you have a when you have a dental or you have a doctor's appointment and you're not supposed to eat for like twelve hours. You know, before you go in. Whenever that happens, I always eat as close to the twelve hour mark as possible. Like I just push it right to the minute so I can be the least hungry, you know, and feel the least crazy when I go in for the appointment. And then as soon as I'm done, oh, fucking first place I go. What is the, what is the nearest restaurant? Does the hospital have a cafeteria? I'm there. It's time to snack it up. I cannot imagine how horrible it would be to go several days with no food. I don't, I don't feel like I would last very long. I feel, like, I feel like I'd make it to maybe like four or five-day mark tops. And I, I just start confessing to whatever shit they wanted. Especially like, can you imagine like you're really hungry? What if they just put like a steak? a perfectly cooked and seasoned steak just out of your reach and just let the smell hit you. Maybe use a little fan, waft the odor back towards you. That, that right there is crazy torture. Uh, but it gets much worse. That's, that's, that's the beginner level. That's level one torture inquisition, uh, which to me is still really bad. But then, uh, you know, we kick it up a notch. Another torture method was called foot roasting, good old foot roasting. And it is exactly as bad as it sounds. Um, Especially if you like you're one of those people with sensitive feet. Like uh man, man, my grandpa is one of these people. You could you could mess around with my grandpa as a kid, he was a very laid back dude. Uh he liked laying his rec- recliner. You could, you know, come by and whop him on the arm or whatever. He'd kind of wrestle with you a little bit. Not like not like Chicatillo wrestling, but you know, be feisty. It's fun, grandpa. But man, if you tickle his feet, rage. Like, like it wasn't like, ah-ha-ha, ha, we're having fun, but don't do that. It was like, do not do that. Do not do that. Just drove him mad. And, uh, and this is way worse than that. Remember, uh, again, these are all things being done to people who have not been convicted of anything. They've just been accused. So, you know, a lot of just like, you know, innocent people, uh, the alleged heretic would have to sit or lay behind this wooden rack device and their bare feet were secured in stock. So they couldn't, you know, move their legs. They couldn't, you know, stop the people from doing what they were doing. The soles of their feet would be basted with lard or oil and then slowly barbecued over a brazier which is a container uh, used to hold burning coals. A screen could sometimes be interposed between the feet and the coals to kind of modulate the exposure. While a bellows, which was a device used to shoot out hot blasts of air, controlled the intensity of the flame. So they would just, like, get it, like, you know, just, just, you know, like a crazy amount of pain, and then back off a little bit, maybe get some blisters, then light you up a little bit again. Because, you know, they wouldn't want, I, I'm sure they were, like, fucking sadist artists with this stuff. They wouldn't want it, you know, to cause you so much pain that you would just go into shock or just pass out, they would want to keep you like at max pain, you know, for just days on end. And some people would be literally driven insane by the intensity of this pain. Like they wouldn't be executed, but they would never mentally be the same again after being tortured this way. Uh, Variants of this included placing slivers of hot coals in between people's toes. Fuck. God, you ever got like a sandal burn when you wear a flip-flop in between your big toe and whatever the toe is next to your big toe? Oh man, that hurts. And this is like next level. This is like next, this is like 10 levels beyond foot roasting. uh, Man, it, uh, yeah, they do just so many different, yeah, just kinds of things, man. They would uh, uh, apply a a clothes iron sometimes to the soles of feet. Oh, very, very rough. Very, very rough. Another form of torture that was actually uh, developed specifically for the inquisitions was the strapado. Now this thing in one version, the hands of the accused were tied behind their back. And then the rope was looped over a brace in the ceiling of the chamber. Whatever they were, you know, interrogating them, it was attached to a pulley. And then the subject would just slowly be raised little by little. So you know, your hands are back, like kind of like the like how a police officer would handcuff you behind your back, just like that. But then imagine a rope being uh, placed around the handcuffs, and then you're being slowly lifted by your shoulders, essentially. And and, and you know, that's so awkward and uncomfortable. And just that alone would sometimes cause, you know, people's shoulders to be pulled out from their sockets. I don't know if you've ever dislocated your shoulder or even had a mild shoulder sprain. I had a mild shoulder sprain. That shit hurts. It's terrible. Uh, Sometimes tortures would would add a series of drops, right? So they could, like, lift you up and then suddenly, like, drop you but not let you hit the floor. So, like, boom, like, all that weight is then pulled even further uh, on your shoulder joints. Weights could be added to the ankles and feet to make the hanging even more painful. You know, pulling your body even further against your shoulder socket. And if if this didn't kill you, which is really sad, you know, even if you got let go, it's it's fucked you up for life. It's not like they had physical therapists back then. It's not like they had surgeons specialized in rotor, you know, rotator cuff repair. You know, so even if you don't confess, you know, you get let go, you don't get burned to the stake. You know, you're not going to be skipping stones with the same velocity like you used to uh, down by the pond. You're not going to be swinging a hammer as hard after that. No, your your fucking shoulders are messed up forever. Uh, The rack. The rack was another well-known torture method associated with the Inquisition. The subject would have his hands or feet tied or chained uh, to rollers at, you know, like both ends of a wooden or metal frame. And then the torturer would just turn the rollers with the handle, which would just, you know, pull the chains or ropes and in increments, stretch the subject's joints, you know, often obviously until they were dislocated, not just shoulders this time. Uh-uh, no, sir, hips, knees, elbows, all that shit could have its ligaments shredded as a torture, you know, really put some muscle on it, really continued turning those rollers, you know, you could uh, have your arms and legs actually be torn off. Uh, I I guess often simply just watching someone else be tortured in that way and tortured on the rack was enough to make other people confess, I bet. While the accused heretics were on the strapado or the rack, uh, inquisitors often applied other torture devices to their bodies. These included heated metal pinchers, thumb screws, oh, 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 man. Boots or other devices designed to burn, pinch, otherwise mutilate people's hands, feet, bodily orifices. Jesus, man, can you imagine you're stretched on the rack? Maybe getting a little screw being put in your eyeball. Ah, although mutilation was technically forbidden uh, long before the Spanish Inquisition in 1256, Pope Alexander IV decreed that inquisitors could also clear each other from any wrongdoing uh, that, that might've went on during the torture session. So really it's like, and there's an easy loophole there. It's like, all right, we weren't supposed to mutilate, but are you going to prosecute me? No? Okay, well, cool. I'm not going to prosecute either. All right, well, then we're good. Then we're good. So they could do what they wanted. Okay, now it gets even worse. There was the Judas Cradle. Also known as the Judas chair, a torture device invented in the 16th century Spain for the Spanish Inquisition. Uh, this shit is rough. A naked victim was forced to sit on top of sharp pointed like a pyramid like seat. The pointy end would go into the anus or vagina of the victim. My God. Right. So there's just like like, yeah, like this pyramid thing. Excuse me, man. Uh, so they have this crazy indigestion. Uh, the, you, you, you sit on this on this pyramid seat and you sit on it butt naked. And you're sitting down so that the little sharp top of the pyramid is either pushed into your anus or pushed into your vagina. And then – and you would be suspended by ropes initially. So initially it wouldn't be your whole body weight on this. Uh, and, and then the – you would be slowly lowered by the system of ropes. So more and more of your weight is now you know, uh, being held just by your either anus or uh, vagina. And obviously the pyramid is pushing further and further inside of you as you're lowered. And then, and then after you were fully lowered, you could also have, like, weights added to your ankles and stuff to pull you even harder down on this pyramid. Uh, you, you, you could end up being impaled by it. You could, you could quite literally uh, be ripped a new asshole by this device. Fuck. Uh, wow, man. There was a thing uh, known as Newton's Orbs. And this is where a man would have to stand facing a wooden rack. He'd be tied to it at the waist and at the legs, securing him tightly to the rack, and then his testicles would be pushed through a small hole in the wood. Two metal balls on strings would swing down, you know, like swing down from the side and hit his testicles, you know, like one metal ball hitting the, the right testicle. Shortly after that, a second metal ball comes down from the left, hits the left testicle, and then the strings, you know, pulled back up again. So then the balls could just hit the accused again and again and again. Not hard enough to rupture him, but hard enough to cause the victim to vomit from pain. In some cases it would go on for days. Uh, the alleged heretic passing out, you know, back and forth, you know, going back and forth between consciousness and unconsciousness. Uh, and there was a women's only torture device as well, you know, like the women's version, I guess. Well, I guess this could be used on men, but it's mostly women. Is the Jupiter's twist. Now, with Jupiter's twist, similar to Newton's orbs, the accused would be tied to a wooden rack facing it. This time, the accused's breasts were exposed with two holes, you know, so the inquisitors could do what they wanted the other side. And what they would do is they take a long, sharp ivory needle-like stick, and they would push it through the heretic's nipples. And then the priest would just use the leverage provided by the strong piece of ivory to slowly twist the nipple. You could just twist it. Sometimes they they would make it up to five full rotations of twist before the nipple would eventually completely dislocate from the breast, at at which point the accused would uh, often, more often than not, be forced to uh, eat it. They'd have to eat their nipple. Now, another popular torture device is known as the preposterous lie, and that's a device employed by me often on this show where I trick listeners into believing horrific nonsense, Uh, nonsense such as Newton's orbs and the Jupiter's twist stories. Those are ridiculous, but to be fair – uh, not more horrific than other real torture methods. So I uh, like to amuse myself. I like to pretend that someone just had enough of the, this episode. They couldn't handle the gratuitous descriptions. They turned it off, and they will forever think about Jupiter's twist. <laughs> They'll forever think about the Spanish but in some doing some nipple twisting, which they probably did, actually. Uh, the Spanish donkey. That was a real one. It was just as awful as Jupiter's twist. Victims would be forced to sit on a wooden wedge, sometimes covered in spikes, with their feet left dangling on the other side of the saddle. la! Sometimes weights would be added to the victim's feet, man, and they could be uh they could be cut down the middle potentially. There was the knee splitter. This was a terrifying device I saw pictures of uh, uh like torture museums sometimes have sometimes have this device. It resembled the the gaping jaw of like a razor-toothed creature. It's it, it like worked as a vice. You'd have the victim's leg would be placed in between this, you know, vice of between two rows of spikes And then they would just crank those two rows of spikes Closer and closer together they would been mechanically drawn closer together And so the, the spikes would be driven into the front And the back of one's knee simultaneously People wouldn't die from that one uh, But they would be permanently crippled You know, they'd be rendered useless to society For the rest of their sad medieval lives And that is enough For today's Super Scary Stuff All right, no idiots of the Internet say, I know, I know, boo, boo. It's terrible, I know, but I just wasn't feeling it with this one. I needed a break. I'll bring it back. I'll bring it back next week with Gary Ridgway. Got to make you miss it here and there or you'll just take it for granted. So, uh, so crazy stuff, right? Man, so many people died or were crippled or at the very least falsely accused and tortured because some 15th century monarchs were worried about uh, Jews and Muslims rising up against their Catholic rule. Uh, we'll never know how many people were affected by the Spanish Inquisition. Victim numbers vary wildly. Estimates have ranged from 30,000 to 300,000 people dying during the Spanish Inquisition. Some historians are convinced actually uh, that millions died. So I should have said most estimates You know, were between thirty and 300,000. Uh, the Catholic Church uh, itself only admits to about 1,300 people dying and about 125,000 total people being put on trial. Uh, part of what makes it hard to nail down specific numbers is is due to the, the church only counting victims from church, sanctum, and inquisition tribunals. And uh, that only accounted for part of the Inquisition. There was a lot of non-sanctioned tribunals doling out torture and murder over the years, which is even scarier in a way. Uh, and, and it makes you appreciate the whole innocent until proven guilty thing we have, right? I mean, it does for me. I get a little judgy like all humans do when certain people are accused of certain crimes, you know, like rape or pedophilia or child murder, you know, that kind of shit. I get real inquisitional real quick. I want to put them on the rack. I want to put hot coals in between their toes. I want to make them sit on Judah's chair. I want to get out, you know, fucking the Jupiter's twist, Jupiter's twist, you know. And I want to do it right now, but you got to give them due process. We don't, we don't want to ever kick off another round of inquisitions. Another reminder of how bad, uh, today also is, or excuse me. Another reminder today is, uh, or another thing we went over today. God, I can't speak is, uh, it's just how bad the Jews had it throughout basically the entirety of European human history. Like we know about the Holocaust, you know, we all know about that except Holocaust deniers who, who are. You know, they've gone to an unbelievably irrational kind of flat-earther mental place, making it pointless to even try to reason with them. But for us rational people, you know, we know about the Holocaust. Uh, but it turns out the Spanish Inquisition, another real low point for the Jewish people. A lot of historians believe that over 90% of all of the victims of the Spanish Inquisition were either of Jewish descent, were Jews, or were thought to have been Jews. Uh, I've heard Christians joke around about the Jews being responsible for the death of Christ, you know, but that was, that was one dude. You know, okay, son of God, but still one. How many Jews have now been killed? you know, overall by, by supposed Christians, especially in, you know, like in Europe, man, millions and millions and millions. Crazy. Just another reminder why anti-Semitism is something to be taken seriously. Historically, anti-Semitism has gotten uh, way out of hand many times, many, many, many times. Uh, so let's get the hell out of here. Time for some top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, the first inquisitions took place a few hundred years before the Spanish inquisitions back in the 12th century. And then inquisitions uh, continued all the way up until the 19th century. Had a good long run. Let's hope they never make a comeback. Number two, the Iberian Peninsula was a tough place to live for a few thousand years. So many kingdoms, so much turnover, so much war. And then when it finally achieved some sort of long lasting political stabilization, the inquisitions happened. Number three, birth control was illegal in Spain still in 1976. That is fucking crazy. Number four, the Judas cradle. That's how some real people, real human beings, you know, as real as you or I met their fate. Clothes are taken off, forced to sit naked atop a sharp pointed pyramid seat. Your butthole or vagina is pressed down on a spiky tip and you sit on that naked. Not sure what would be worse for you ladies, vagina or butthole. I uh, I bet buttholes worse, right? I feel like uh, women seem uh, obviously much more reluctant to allow something to penetrate their buttholes than their vaginas. <laughs> you know, your vagina is designed for entry while your butthole is not. Then you had weights added to your feet, slowly pulling the tip deeper inside of you, stretching you apart. Are you cringing yet? Man, let's not ever bring that back. As bad as being burned at the stake sounds, I, I think I, I think I tap out at the Judas Cradle and just beg to be burnt. I don't ever want to be burned alive, but if I'm given a choice and the only choice is Judas Cradle or burned alive, I'm like, all right, fucking let's light it up. Let's light it up. Uh, number five, new info. Uh, uh. Uh, was almost all of this episode, you know, that I talked about, all the things I talked about, just utter bullshit. Uh, that's what some Spanish historians are recently claiming. Um, the Hispanic Civilization Foundation, a group of historians, academics, Spanish nationalists, they've created an organization to dispel what they consider to be historical myths about Spanish culture. They're, they're very serious about it. For more than 500 years, uh, they say that their country's past has been disfigured and distorted by propaganda spread by its former opponents and rivals. The so-called Leyenda Negra, a black legend, has been spun by chroniclers in England and the Netherlands, supposedly sought to depict their Roman Catholic enemies as unusually cruel and bloodthirsty, and they wanted to exaggerate the brutality of the Spanish Empire and the Inquisition. According to their foundation, Spaniards have spent far too long feeling guilty and ashamed of their past and worrying about how they're seen by the rest of the world, and a lot of this is propaganda and lies. And they're not just pissed about the Inquisition, they're pissed about how Spanish conquistadors have been portrayed as well. You know, they've argued that uh, Hernán Cortez and Francisco Pizarro that they brought about a far more humanitarian system to the Aztec and Inca empires you know that they had conquered than they previously had there you know they're saying that cortez and pizarro went into territories that you know where people were doing stuff like practicing and human sacrifice you know cortez had no problem aligning himself with these indigenous peoples who saw the spanish as liberators from aztec oppression and things were even worse with the incas whose empire was very totalitarian and you know and they were they were they were freedom fighters they weren't oppressors and you know and i see their point on one side, but also on the other side. Shut the fuck up, right? No no one no one is pissed at modern Spaniards. What are you doing? For what went on with the Aztecs or what went on during the Spanish Inquisition? You really you're carrying around 11 people get that wrapped up in history when they're like they're they're carrying they're sick of carrying around the shame of their name being, you know, dragged through the mud. There's there's enough of it. Why, why are people ashamed by the past that way? I don't, I don't like, personally ashamed. Like, I don't understand people who, who identify that strongly with the dirty deeds of their distant ancestors. Like, if I found out that my great-great-great-great-great-grandpa was a slave owner, I, I wouldn't think, ah, oh, fuck, I got to change my life's course now. Got to do nothing but apologizing from here on out. I got to make this shit right. No, I don't. It wasn't me. I wasn't born yet. What are you talking about? I had nothing to do with that shit, you know? And on top of it, I was born poor. So I, I didn't get, like, a financial leg up or nothing out of it, you know? Uh, I worry about the shit I do and the shit I've done. And, and honestly, now as a parent, I worry about the shit that my kids do and may do, you know, but if like my dad even, you know, kills somebody next week, I'm not going to apologize to anyone. You know? Yeah. I'm like, you know, that's his deal. Sorry. Tough break. You know? Yeah. He's a hothead. Always has been. Yeah. He should have been locked up years ago. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not surprised, but don't, don't yell at me. He's a grown ass man. Does whatever he wants. You know, why are these people worried about what others may think about their ancestors? Uh cry babies. Uh, it is interesting how history works, though, especially history before we get, you know, we, we were able to record it through video. So much of it, you know, written by somebody with an agenda uh, that isn't reporting the truth at all costs. Well, regarding the Spanish Inquisition, I do think it happened. I do think it happened, and I do think it was just as bad as everything I've described today. And that is what most historians believe. And, uh, and I think this is it for this week's Top 5 Takeaways. Time suck. Top 5 takeaways. Spanish Inquisition has been sucked. So much torture. Uh, it it's fun to dig back into European history again. Got to get some more world history on the suck. So fascinating to me how all of our nations have been formed. You know, so interesting how many cultures there are in this one big rock and how they just, you know, they're just constantly morphing and changing. Uh, don't forget to grab my new album, maybe on the problem, on iTunes, Amazon, and Google Play if you're a Santa fan. It's available at all the usual digital suspects down. Very proud of it. The reviews so far have been pretty good. Pretty good. Thanks to Harmony Vellacamp, Jesse Dobner, Lindsey Cummins, Josh Krell. Entire Time Suck team for their help and huge thanks to Maddie the Heater Teeter, Bojangles Research Department official intern, for doing some great research. Would not have known about the Judas Cradle without you, Maddie. Next week, Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer, convicted of 49 murders that occurred between 1982 and 1998 in the Pacific Northwest. He supposedly confessed to over 70 murders, thought to have killed over 90 people. He's almost as bad as a Spanish Inquisitor. According to Wikipedia, he had a bedwetting problem until he was 13 and his mother uh, would wash his genitals after every episode. Uh, if you're a parent and your kid's a bedwetter, uh, don't fucking do that. Don't wash their dick or vajay. Uh-uh. You let them wash it themselves. He would later tell a defense psychologist that at his adolescence he had conflicting feelings of anger and sexual attraction towards his mother, fantasized about killing her, so uh, it seems like she at least helped him become a serial killer. Interesting to find out if all of this is true. This is just uh, you know, a quick little glance at Wikipedia. We're going to do a much, much deeper dig for this next week's suck. Looking forward to a serial killer suck. Is that weird to say? You know, my brain is tired from the past several sucks. They've been very tough to research. Biography is always a little more straightforward. Uh, Thanks for following, by the way, on on such a wide range of topics, man. Downloads are pretty consistent now, which is just incredible to me, you know, because this is not how you're supposed to do a podcast. Uh, You know, time suck. I I get why people passed on the on the concept. It's not good for marketing. What is it? Is it a history podcast? What is it? Is it a true crime podcast? Is it is it a paranormal podcast? A theology podcast? What the fuck is it? It's Time suck, motherfucker. It's following the path of curiosity about the world around us. And to be honest, it does tend to focus a wee bit on the dark side of the world around us. Sorry, that's just what I'm drawn to. But it's just about about everything interesting, about learning new stuff, about anything that is interesting. And now let's find out what you suckers have been drawn to this past week with some Time Sucker updates. Updates? Get your Time Sucker updates. All right, Shadow People update first. Always creepy. This one is from spooked time sucker, Grant Huddleston. Grant writes, Hail Suck, Master Prophet of Nimrod. Uh, my brother and I have been listening to Suck for a few months now trying to catch up. We are farmers in California. That's awesome. I don't know why I always get excited about like farmers. It seems like a cool job. And the other night, uh, you know, there was a Shadow People episode on while we were irrigating at night. Oh, man, that's the wrong one for that. I was in the middle of a pitch black... Uh, Area trying to get uh, through it, but I couldn't. I, I know how you feel when you said that it freaked you out. Being alone and out at night, surrounded by only trees and darkness, waiting for the slow moving water. Oh, so you were in a ditch. Sorry, that one. Uh, you were a ditch at night. Oh my God. With nothing to do but listen to, uh, to you scare yourself, scared me. I had to wait until the next day to listen to The Suck Again because I don't skip episodes. Oh, that's hilarious. You had to like stop listening. No, man, I get it. You're just like, you sound like you're just like me, uh, where, uh, you know, I can talk real tough during the day and then I get real scared at night. Um, thanks for making a community that I feel like I belong to. My brother and I talk about episodes every day. Oh, that's awesome. And and, and both comment on how we feel like we know you and are friends with you because uh, you come into our ear holes and suck at us every day. Can't wait to see you form in Sacramento in a few weeks. We hope to finally meet the Lord of suck, even though uh, we feel like we've been friends for a while now. Keep on sucking. Well, you you will meet me. I uh, talk to everybody who comes to the shows after the show, we shake everybody's hand, all that. And, uh, you know, it, it is interesting. I feel like a lot of you guys listening listen to the, those of you who have listened to the whole catalog in, in, in a way you do know me more than most of my friends have ever known me because it's it, kind of a weird thing with podcasting. you put yourself in a mental space where you almost pretend like no one's ever going to hear what you're saying, even though everybody hears it. So I've talked to other podcasters so that way. It's kind of a weird thing. Uh, so you do know me. Uh, Now, sweet message from kind hearted time sucker, Rachel Hoffman, who says, hi there, Dan, Michigan time sucker, Rachel here to tell you how much of a difference you make. I had the opportunity to see your stand-up show in Detroit in February. And yeah, you had the opportunity to have my very drunk boyfriend swoon over you. Since your show, I have marathons time suck and listen to every episode while at my terrible desk job. You dearest Dan are the light in the dark, mundane and monotonous days. Uh, even when I don't think that I will be interested in a topic, I listen anyway and find myself endlessly amused. I never thought of myself as an avid learner, but time suck has made me realize I do have a curiosity for knowledge. Wow, that was some sappy shit. And again, that, that's Rachel saying this, not me. That would be, that'd be a weird take if that was me saying that. Like, okay, you fucking weirdo. That was sappy as hell. Ugh, No, it's still Rachel talking. Wow, that was some sappy shit, but yeah, just keep doing what you're doing. Thanks for allowing Bojangles wicked self to beat knowledge into you. Hail knowledge, or sorry, hail Nimrod, also Zafina, and uh, watch out for Chikatilo when he's feeling handsy. P.S. Paul Bunyan might be a cool time suck for your Midwest time suckers, or since you have a a love for the, yeah, Irish accents, yeah. The Siege of uh, Jadetville could be a good one too. Rachel Hoffman. Well, thank you, Rachel. That was very nice. Yeah, I love, uh, I love uh, those kind of emails almost the most, you know, where you, you rekindle your, your, uh. You know, knowledge for curiosity. I, d- I just feel like a lot of us, you know, when we were kids, we'd get into reading cool books or sharing cool stories. Then at some point, a lot of us, you know, it's like maybe the wrong teacher or just uh, the wrong job just kind of beats that out of you You start to get the association of like having to learn. is like a, like a, you know, a painful thing. Like, oh, I got to go to this seminar this weekend. Ugh, it's going to be terrible. No, it can be fun. It can be fun. Uh, now some fan fiction from creative sucker Grant Ritter. I'm excited because I did not allow myself to read this yet. I know what it's about. I mean, roughly from the first few sentences, but I didn't read further than that. So you're going to find out with me exactly what this is. What's up, senior suck? This isn't an update, but more of a story about an interesting discovery that I made. I'll start by saying that my grandfather was a huge Pootie and Juju fan. He owned every season of Pootie and Juju's Magic Twinkle Hole DVD, VHS, and LaserDisc. He also owned every episode of the very short-lived television show, Pootie and Juju's Secret Silly Sin Slit, Went through a mix of live action, animation, and psychedelia. Think Who Framed Roger Rabbit meets your worst fucking nightmare. Our dynamic duo travels through time and space to give historical naughties uh, a what-for-as-only-they-can. But another thing he owned was every single Pootie and Juju comic book. He owned every issue from the very first one published by Reverend Dr. Antoine Jackson Jackson Esquire III to the very last one published by Jamal Jackson, including the one – the often glossed-over silver age of PJ comics written by Antoine's son and Jamal's father, Reverend Dr. Anton Jackson, ex- Esquire III, Jr. What many people forget about Poodie and Juju history is that Reverend Dr. Anton Jackson, Esquire III, Jr. was not always meant to be heir to the Poodie and Juju empire. It was originally meant to be his older brother, Bill Jackson. When Reverend Dr. Antoine Jackson the Third Senior became too ill to continue on with the comics, he anointed or appointed his oldest son to take over the production. Bill, however... Only ever published one comic, a comic that was so universally hated that it temporarily halted production on any form of Pootie and Juju entertainment for over a year. And I have recently found that comic in my grandfather's house. The comic has since become known as Pootie and Juju issue zero in several Pootie and Juju fan circles, and it historically was only in circulation for less than one day. It only took 16 hours for the comic to be immediately removed from store shelves across the world, but the damage was already done. Nobody except for the seldom few who own the comic know the real title or the actual plot of it until now. The title of the comic is Pootie and Juju issue 445 Pootie History X, in which Pootie, no shit joins the Aryan Brotherhood. Oh, fuck. Pootie and Juju were out on a lovely rollerblading spree, as they had done every Wednesday for years when Pootie had a terrible accident. He or she... (laughs) He or she had run into a harmless Mexican man, causing both of them to fall into the ground. The man was fine, but Pootie could not say as much. He or she had chosen to lead with their face (laughs) on the concrete, hitting their head with a brutal thud, leaving them in a coma for many moons. Pootie awoke in a hospital with Juju right at their side. Juju could immediately tell that Pooty wasn't as they were before the accident. They were short with just every, about anyone who worked at the hospital who didn't have blonde hair or blue eyes. They flat out ignored any nurses or doctors of color, and they got super into Ted Nugent and Charlie Daniels. In the days that followed, Pootie was sleeping later and later. No longer was he waking up at 5 45 AM or the dot like on the dot, like they had for years. But they were sleeping in until 11, 12 AM. Judy later discovers that the reason this was because, or, or the the reason for this was that Pooty was sneaking out to participate in neo-Nazi rallies. Shock, gasp, horror. Juju went into Pooty's room to investigate and found a poster of Adolf Hitler taking up the entirety of his wall, along with roughly a shit ton of copies of Mein Kampf scattered around the room, so Pootie could read it whenever whatever part of the room he was in. When Juju confronted Pooty about this, they shouted, you sure do squawk a lot for a smelly brown person, and then they went on to say, put it in your lunchbox, and then dropped an N-bomb. Despite the fact that Juju was whiter than bird shit, Containing mostly sour cream that was dropped into a perfectly clean to- toilet that was located on the sun. <laughs> Juju was crushed, but Pooty gave Juju an ultimatum You're either with us or you're against us, Shirley. When Juju refused to join Pooty in his hate, Pooty mocked and insulted Juju, calling him a, a, a Jewish lover rather than his name. This was too much for Juju. He screamed, Too little, too dear, Pooty! Shoved Pooty onto the ground, causing him to hit a head once again. Then, when Pooty woke up to Juju's delight, Pooty was cured of his racist, bigoted, and hateful thoughts. And went back to being the loving and somewhat accepting Pootie that we all know and love. Just thought as a fellow Pootie and Juju enthusiast that you'd love to hear about Pootie and Juju issue, uh, issue zero, that almost single-handedly ended the Pootie and Juju series. I love the podcast, love being a space lizard, praise Mojangles. be gone Lucifina, and most importantly, hail Nimrod. Wow, Grant, my God. Well done, Grant Ritter. Yeah, you had to really know your fucking time suck shit for that one. My God, that was awesome. That was awesome. Fan fiction, wonderfully done. And uh, and finally, yeah, wonderfully done. Finally, one last message regarding the Annalise Michelle exorcism suck from Theology Wizard and Super Sucker John Dvorak. John initially sent in a pic of a busted pootie and juju mug. When I was talking to him about replacing it, getting it fixed, he sent back this, uh, this email. He said, uh, wow, honored— to receive a reply from the Holy Count Succulent. So promptly, thank you very much. Damn fine job on your latest foray into religiosity, by the way. I was chair of philosophy and religion and taught history of Christianity for nearly a decade at a Catholic college, and I wrote two papers concerning exorcism and possession to grad school. So I'm actually a bit of an expert concerning your recent material, and I can say you presented very complex topics in a a way as well as could be done in about two hours. Even if you did call the the four Gospels Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Paul. Uh, In the Lost Books episode, Paul isn't a gospel writer, numbnuts. The fourth one is John. John, by the way, is very Gnostic in ideology and subtly carries many threads from those lost Gnostic Gnostic traditions. Anyway, thank you for the mugs. Sincere thanks for all that you do. You're the first thing I listen to when I'm driving or walking. My puppy, my girlfriend, and I love you. We spread the gospel of Nimrod to all that have ears. Keep on sucking, John. Oh, man. Well, thank you, John. You know, thank you. Thanks for pointing out that mistake I made. Uh, and, uh, and I love when experts in a field, man, uh, give me some good feedback. And I'll tell you what, man, I think about experts every single episode now. It's why I was up till, uh, one 30 in the morning, even though I had to get up at five 30, uh, working on the uh, Spanish inquisition because I'm like, ah, man, there's going to be someone listening who knows a lot of shit about this. I can't fucking butcher it. So you guys, you guys keep me focused. Many thanks to all you suckers who show up at shows who write in, you know, with topics, Uh, who pledge support on Patreon and who enjoy learning as much as they can during the limited amount of rotations they have around the son of ours? Love you guys. Next time, suckers. I needed that. We all did. Have a great week, everybody. Don't forget to check Instagram for the release of that last Pootie and Juju limited edition mug. I I think tomorrow morning. I don't have the exact time yet, so keep an eye on Instagram tomorrow morning. Uh, if you really want one of those mugs and, uh, be sure and pick up maybe on the problem on iTunes, Amazon, Google play. If you enjoy my up. uh, do not set down on a Judas cradle or uh, do not set someone else down on a Judas cradle. Do not try to see if you actually can create a Jupiter's twist and keep on sucking.